and gentlemen. The following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo comes to you from Weimar-era Germany, where cinematic art triumphs from the works of many masters engaged in expressionism and reflection on the great conflict years prior. It's an age of intellectualism and an echoed decadence from the states, and the world is as colorful as one can imagine, with no impending political doom on the horizon whatsoever wink more on that later but we have a bigger issue though because stop the presses another child has fallen victim to a mysterious killer the city is in a panic the police overstretched and the criminals inconvenienced will no one be able to catch a killer who whistles edvar grieg before each kill that's right ladies and gentlemen tonight the ballyhoo at last encounters fritz lang as we unravel his 1931 sound debut m so see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds ausschnitte aus dem erregenden spannenden und aktuellen kriminalfilm m den der Regisseur Fritz Lang für die Nero-Produktion geschaffen hat. Die Handlung dieses einzigartigen Kriminalfilms ist von atemberaubender Explosivität. Spannungsgeladen von Anfang bis Ende. Hallo, was hast du denn? Hallo, Paulin! Was ist denn? Ich hab mein Kopf gehört! Was soll ich euch denn nicht sagen? Los, Affen! Ich kann Das Resultat, bitte! Das Resultat! Ich komme nämlich vom Finanzamt. Wer ist der geheimnisvolle Unbekannte, der Millionen Menschen einer Stadt terrorisiert? Wo verbirgt er sich? Wie sieht er aus? Wer ist der Mörder? Jeder kann es sein. Jeder ist verdächtig. Du bist wohl verrückt, du Schweinskerl! M. Das Meisterwerk auf dem Gebiet des Kriminalfilms. 
mit Otto Wernicke. Hören Sie mal bloß auf von der Mitarbeit des Publikums. Gustav Grünkens. Meine Herren, wenn sich mir bei Ausübung meines Berufs ein Kriminalbeamter den Weg stellt, dann weiß er, welches Risiko er eingeht. Und ich weiß es auch. Theodor Los. Lassen Sie mal einen Wächter reinkommen. Theo Lingen. Paul Kemp. Fritz Odemar. Ist denn schon 3 Uhr? Peter Lorre. Rosa Valetti. Was glauben Sie, was die hier alle für eine Stinkwut auf den Kerl haben? Friedrich Gnas. Mann, meinst du? Ich weiß von nichts, Herr Kommissar. M. Ein Film, den jeder gesehen haben muss. Wir zeigen diesen spannenden Kriminalfilm demnächst in diesem Theater. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Lang had already built a foundation for silent cinema in Germany with his dexterity with fantasy and thriller. But as the sound film dawned and his last three films financially flopped, Lang moved from Ufa to Nero Films for his sound debut and would, in the process, give the world... Give everyone's give the world everyone's favorite sleazy character, Peter Lorre. But apart from the two figures that permeate pop culture beyond just their film work, M has much more ground to stand on than just two cinematic titans. It's dissection of police procedure. It's delving into the ensuing panic from a from a murder on the loose. The uh, the psychological tendencies that define a murder, and its glib commentary on the hysteria that ensues from media panic and moral panic. One may not need look far, but just how many ways has M shaped the film culture today? And how much of it carries heavy truths that have echoed since society became more streamlined? Tonight we shall answer this question as much as we can, but we cannot do it alone. With us is a return guest whose knowledge of Japanese cinema is almost as wonderfully blossoming as his knowledge on the machinations of an evil Andy Griffith, and you can hear him occasionally on the Real Nerds podcast, or you can be checking out his short films on YouTube, or you can be on the lookout for him as a screenwriter. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Henry Jarvis. Hello, it's me, Henry Jarvis, everyone's favorite guest. (laughs) Everyone demanded it, so I'm back. I think Adam Jewell wants a word with you. (laughs) He's the five-timer, that's the thing. He just, um, by the time... This comes out, you'll have already heard the Hustler episode, but he's the five-timer. He's the- Oh, well, you know, quality over quantity. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> okay, let's let's get one thing right off the bat. <laughs> I came here to start a war. I, 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 <laughs> yes, so... yes, clearly. <laughs> so let me, let me ask you, like, wh- at what point between a face in the crowd and this moment were you saying, fuck it, <laughs> I'm going to become the ultimate ballyhooite? <laughs> I mean, you are on the show every week, so technically you do outrank Adam. <laughs> Listen, I uh, I don't want to brag, but I get a lot of fan mail, and uh, <laughs> always like, oh my god, Henry, I love doing that Ballyhoo episode. When when's the next time you're gonna be on Ballyhoo? I fall asleep listening to you on Ballyhoo. <laughs> I just I. The fans demand content, so I feel like I owe it to them. You know what? I'm going to let Orson Welles correct your pronunciation. Ballyhoo is actually pronounced... Ballyhoo. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, listen, those are the fans, Well, that, that is your pretent- so. <laughs> That is your pretentious side coming out. <laughs> well, listen, I'm a contrarian. I know. Uh, my, I, my I, know. Corn, so. I know you are. It's uh, yesterday, Ballyhoo, 
revising. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <something>. <laughs> and, and you know what? Actually, that just reminded me, because at this point, it's already been announced and the second entry will have already dropped in the Jacques Tati series. Mm. This is the primest time to get you on as a guest for that series. Yeah. Because it will just piss Ryan off so yeah. much. <laughs> Be like, I can't even listen to shit. Listen, the winners write history, and I've decided that I've won. And so. <laughs> careful, careful, careful. <laughs> Remember what happened last year and the year before that and the year. <sighs> but. Anyway. Yes. Well, I want to catch up with you. How have you been? What's been going on in your life? What What have you been working on lately? Ah, uh, you know, just getting through, trying to get paid, <laughs> trying to survive. I feel like everyone's 2021 has been around the same. Yeah, pretty which is, much. Uh, everyone just kind of sitting in the rubble of 2020 mm-hmm. uh, and realizing that 2021 probably wasn't going to be as great. No. Uh, and so... No. Uh, and uh, honestly, I think I, like many people, have looked at the rubble that I've been sitting in for the past year and thought, is this just society now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've slowly lost my mind. Have you? You've watched the first Mad Max, obviously, right? Of course not, I have. Not, not the one where everything becomes completely chaotic. I'm talking about the one where society looks like it's halfway standing inside a decaying city. Yeah. Um, that's what I feel Detroit. like. We're, we're just entering, we're inching towards that. Yes, Detroit. Yes. Yeah, so like, <laughs> oh, God, it's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. You <laughs> but know. but I, I, I think we are inching towards it. I think we're inching towards it every so, so much further than we realize. And what better time as civilization decays from conflict upon conflict, from struggle against struggle to bickering against bickering, than to talk about Fritz Long's M. <laughs> I think it's the perfect time. It is the perfect time. And you pitched this to me rather enthusiastically. I got a text from you going like, I'm ready to talk M. And I'm like, yeah. oh, oh, my. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd ever. I, the only other person that I heard so much enthusiasm for was, uh, well, it's two. One was Abella Bala. She was very excited to come. She's very excited to come back. Um, and I guess also, um, uh, 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 Tyler, maybe. Yeah. Cause he was, he, cause when we pitched, uh, we pitched Marx brothers and then he also pitched Disney package features. Mm. So the in-between films, mm-hmm. uh, that technically kept the studio afloat. Yeah. So we're going to do that eventually, but also was John Matthews who I had on for inner sanctum radio series. Yeah. And he sent me a list of things that were, that were definitely going to be discussed and some things that the cutoff doesn't allow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, maybe I should just make this pre 1980. Yeah. You know, that's, that's cause that's when cinema decided it was a business and yeah. not for art and business. Yeah. But Thanks Spielberg. No, it's not completely his fault. Uh-huh. It's also my fault. Yeah, so like, <laughs> yeah. American capitalists coming to ruin every art form this fall. <laughs> Speaking of American capitalists, we're not talking about one. We're talking about no, Fritz we're talking Lang. about German capitalists. Yeah, German capitalists. That's right. So, Henry, yes. you're, you're a young buck. I am a young buck. Yeah. Um, people who don't appreciate pretentiousness would call you a, would call you a young fuck. Yeah. But um, regardless of what you are, you're young. Yeah. And um, I want to know what your introduction to M was and your introduction to Fritz Long at large. Uh, well, I would say M was probably my first introduction to Fritz Long. Uh, M, I would, it's in my top five favorite films of all time. Um, in all my favorite films of all time, I kind of approach that kind of differently than like 
I think some some I think some people view their favorite films as like this is my favorite film. I know every fact about it. I've seen it five thousand times. I always kind of associate my favorite films with just experiences of how I experience them. That's how I feel about Jackie Brown. Yeah, that's yeah, why. Yeah. That's one of the reasons where it's just like I don't know every single production piece of information. Yeah, partially because Quentin Tarantino doesn't do commentaries. Yeah, but also I've just. I've always felt it best just like just embrace this magic yeah. for what it is. Now my two through five, however, I know way too much about. Yeah. <laughs> like so, Casablanca, Zodiac, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To Be or Not to Be, um, and Halloween. Yeah, like I'll I'll tell you the ins and outs of those. But yeah. I I I sympathize with that. I totally yeah. agree with that. And my story with M is uh, when I was like sixth grade, so like probably like eleven, twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom brought me to Balboa Park, which is a series of museums in San Diego. Yeah. And we were walking through the modern art museum uh, and I got bored. And so I found like a dark room with like a small couch on it and that's it. And so I went in there and I just took a nap. Uh, (laughs) And when I woke up, I woke up and it turns out the room that I was in was like the film screening portion of the yeah museum. The, the art museum yeah they yeah, have yeah, a few yeah, of those. yeah they always have like one one or two rooms that are showing like yeah. visual art like at the stuff. denver nature and science museum it's a it's the same story of creation video that they've yeah. shown for 20 fucking yeah. years <laughs> and so i wake up and i'm around 15 minutes into m and i've never heard of this movie before i don't know what this movie even is mm-hmm. uh but i wake up around like 15 minutes in yeah. Uh, and so, and I wake up and I'm like, I'll just watch whatever this is now. And so I just <laughs> sat there and I watched all of M in this art museum. Uh, and I had no idea what the film was because it's I just had no idea. And you were how old again? I was like 11, 12. Okay, um, that's fair. Yeah. I, I was, I, I first thought I heard six and I was like, no. Not no. Six. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not that old. Uh, six-year-old me couldn't tolerate a black and white. Yes, uh, old I, as German film. I remember when when young Henry Jarvis saw the film for the first time. Yeah, it was a glorious. I, I Fritz Lang smiled down from heaven. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so then I uh, after that I went to the gift shop of the uh, museum, mm-hmm. and I was and I was like, "What was that wonderful movie that you showed?" <laughs> and he said, "Kid, will you calm down?" <laughs> and they handed me the Criterion DVD of M. And that was my introduction to both Criterion, Fritz Long, and the film M. And your mother saw this and said, eh, it's about a childbirth. Well, what could first, go wrong? Well, she had not. She didn't watch it with me. She was concerned because she couldn't find me for the entirety of this movie. <laughs> I guess so, like, I guess that's the relief I had point. snuck up to a dark room and fallen asleep. Oh, my so. God. I wasn't an irresponsible parent. Yes, of course. Please take that a Peter Lorre debut yeah, <laughs> in so, full you know, hand. Just please don't tell anybody else yeah, about this. So. And certainly don't mention it on a podcast years later. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the story of how and, my mom lost me in San Diego and then how I got interested in German expressionism. We also know so, that Henry's mom is the biggest listener of the show. Well, you know, what can you do? Her favorite. Her f- Who do you think sending me all the fan mail? Yeah, it's my mom. Yeah. So. Well, oddly enough, though, she told me her favorite episode was the uh, Matter of Life and Death one, which I was just like, Listen, that seems mean. I don't. I mean. I'm not going to tell her what to like, but um, I would appreciate it if... Uh, John Strelick has a sexy voice, let's face it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to deny. So, <laughs> so that's, a, that's a great story for M. Mine's pretty fucking standard. I saw this film in film school. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. um, not in a screening room, sadly. Um, mm. It was on a DVD. Uh, on the television that you see right there, that yep. old Mitsubishi television, um, I had hooked up the ps3 so we didn't have an hdtv back then but i got the um i was getting blu-rays and whatnot but the m blu-ray hadn't come out yet to my knowledge 
if, if it was there, I didn't see it, but I got the DVD from the library mm-hmm. and I watched it and I, th- that wasn't my first exposure to long because I had seen sections of Metropolis before mm-hmm. and I had seen clips from M, but I'd never seen the full thing. So my first unfolding experience was M and then the conversation with Fritz Long by William Friedkin that's on that disc, mm-hmm. which when I first saw that, I was engrossed by his by his story. And then when you learn that he liked to f- he it's kind of like in the master when Jesse Plemons leans over into Walking Phoenix going like, you know, he's making it all this up. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's kind of like the revelation like point for me of just like, oh, he's a bullshitter. Yeah. But a very talented one at that. Yeah. Um, but M struck me right away. It was just, I'd never seen anything that daring from, from the past like that. Oh yeah. Hollywood or world cinema period. Oh yeah. Like of anything that I'd seen up to that point it, and the movie is still daring. There are a couple of directors I've found recently that are like from this era, from mm-hmm. like, whether that be from like the thirties up to like the fifties, let's say where I've started watching their filmography for song being one of them where it feels so much more modern. Than you would think. Yeah. And how like there's a lot of just of their contemporaries. They're so much ahead of the game. Yeah. Uh, not I mean, just in terms of just like the, the structure, the lighting, the like the feel and like the just the emotions that get drawn into it. They, they're they're willing to tiptoe. Yeah. Around sensors for the engagement of darker material or yeah. even lighter material that carries a hairier burden heavier mm-hmm. heavier burden not yeah. a hairier burden that'd be weird yeah what can you do um, well, that'd be harry and the hendersons is what it would be yeah um but i i I'm, I, i'm glad you point to that as like these like these select directors that we that we have in our midst like i put raul walsh in that category yeah. um i would put uh john houston in that category yeah I'd put John Ford in that category. Oh, well, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, it, visual, there are visual elements combined with stories he chooses to tell that for whatever my opinion is on how they hold up today, it's undeniable that they are touching into tricky yeah, territory. Inf- I can agree uh, with that. The, inf- uh, the Informer yeah. is, is one, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see that, yeah. Um, and even Grapes of Wrath and How Green Was My Valley, those were those were yeah. decidedly very uh, anti-establishment for their era. Yeah. Um, but not the same daringness that's coming out of different visual artists like a Hitchcock or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like an Orson Welles. Um, Long, though, is a director that when after watching M, I consumed his silent film library and never really delved into his American work until this year mm-hmm. um, when I finally saw Ministry of Fear. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love every era of Lang, clearly. Yeah. Because he never ceases to entertain me. Yeah. Um, Long comes from this element of German expressionism, which has been a phrase that has been said on this show before, but it's also said by every fucking film student, filmmaker, film enthusiast everybody knows what german expression is it entails harsh shadows rigid lines yeah patterns <laughs> it's like german expressionism is it's one of like i was thinking about recently it's one of like the three film movements that you just have to know it's like the first lesson of film school yeah it's that uh french new wave mm-hmm. and uh the new American Hollywood. Yeah. Like, or like the, Oh, you wouldn't would even think. put neorealism in that category. 
I mean, uh, you know, that's it's it, that would be four. I mean, but yeah, like, uh, but if you're talking, yeah, I agree with the top three. Yeah, I just I was just expecting neorealism. Neorealism is definitely like it's up there, but yeah, everyone has at least seen one American New Wave film. Yeah, and everyone one. can in or can at least name uh, a French New Wave film or a like you can everyone has can name Doctor Caligari. Uh, and everyone can name Breathless. Yeah, uh, but I don't know if anyone can name you know Rome Open City. And so, like, I mean, I can now. Do I remember it? No. Well, you're Zach, though. <laughs> like, so, like, but, but it's a difference between knowing it yeah. and remembering it in casual conversation. Yeah. And the answer is absolutely not. Yeah. So, if you, are, if you want to ask me about Rossellini, I'm just going to look at you and start drooling and going like, uh, yeah, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's not out of desired ignorance. It's more just like, no, I just it's something that I need to beef up on. Expressionism, though. I think out of any film movement that comes out of world cinema, it's the one that we actually tap into at the earliest possible age. Yeah. Not because of the people who innovated it necessarily. Although at, at my age, 30. Yeah. Jesus. Um, uh, we're the era that I grew up in was in an in-between between older pop culture and older mediums. Mm-hmm. And the wave of the internet, the millennial generation, essentially that that's what we were birthed on and nursed on was computers by, by the age of 10 at, at, at the least. Yeah. And so there was still a time where we would flip through the television. We'd have to look at the TV guide. We'd have to figure out what was on when we'd have to record off of VHS Mm -hmm. or we'd have to go to the video store, which we could still go to, um, if it weren't for, um, terrible things. Yeah. But the, the pop culture from the golden age or early cinema was still permeating the television in various different ways, whether through retrospectives, the emerging AFI programming, um, uh, even intersplicing clips of Nosferatu into oh, yeah. the beginning of things like Ernest Scared Stupid. Yeah, like yeah. that, like I believe Nosferatu is at the beginning of Ernest Scared Stupid. I don't remember that opening montage. I just remember that that song is. I don't jammed. either. So I think we can just both agree that that is what happens. Yeah, but that so, that, that song is jamming though. I yeah, will say that. Listen, it's a complete banger. Yeah, but uh, I do remember that like one of my earliest exposures to any form of expressionism and thus German cinema was actually in SpongeBob SquarePants in. <laughs> <and>, um, <laughs> Because right. <laughs> Hillenburg was actually kind of a fucking genius. No, he was. No, yeah. Not not kind of scratch that. Was a fucking genius. Yeah. Um. Because he was intersplicing like adult pop culture references that artistically fit the bill of what SpongeBob SquarePants was. Yeah. So the hash slinging slasher episode, the graveyard shift, is yeah, yeah, the yeah. title of the of the of the short. And it's at the end when they're trying to figure out who was actually flipping on and off the lights and it cuts to a little clip of Nosferatu doing it and they go, Nosferatu. And then you see Nosferatu smile, yeah, um, which he never does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so like that's kind of an early ex- uh, exposure. But also, I know we give him shit today and maybe we need to stop. I don't know. But Tim Burton engages yeah. in expressionism. Like it's a morning workout. <laughs> yeah. Listen, has Tim Burton missed a few times recently? Yeah. Is Tim Burton still one of the best living auteurs based on his entire filmography? Also, yes. And so mm-hmm. the more I the more I think about it, the more I realize that like 
He's been a punching bag for so long that he's going to get the resurgence he deserves, and I'm all oh, for yeah. it. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. I'm... Eventually, he's going to get a retrospective somewhere, and he'll release a film that's going to be his comeback indie film. And yeah. so he'll I'll... release Big Fish 2, Bigger Fish. <laughs> and so. I'm not dead yet. No, it's his mom this time. His mom dies, and now there's another fish that he's got to deal with. And so. <laughs> Who do you want me to be, William? A bigger fish? <laughs> I just caught a real bigger fish this time. I'm drying out again. <laughs> oh, Albert Finney. <laughs> what about Ed Wood 2, where he actually covers the declining years of Ed Wood and makes a tragedy out of it? It, oh, ooh, Edward, Ed that Wood, could work. Edward died of fucking alcoholism. Yeah. But no, like, yes, that early exposure to Tim Burton is a form of expressionism that we experience early on. Yeah. And as we get older, we go into different forms of it. And I think horror films obviously are the big push in that, but also crime films. Yeah. Um, and crime films, I think without even intending it, delve into expressionism on accident on most basis. Um, well, except David Fincher. I think David Fincher does that intentionally because he's David Fincher and yeah. it takes forever to make a movie. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes he makes a movie that gets all the facts wrong. But yeah. that's beside the point. Yeah, what can um, you do? It's, it's still a good movie. Yeah. Um, but Long, though, is one of the people that innovates it. Now, he's not the only one. And I guess, like, as we go through more German expressionist films, we're going to be talking about how the movement kind of, like, evolved. Oh, yeah. But you mentioned Caligari. Like, he turned down making Caligari. Yeah. <laughs> which I which I found fascinating in research. I That I did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do know is that he was born on December 5th, 1890 in Vienna to an architect and construction company manager. Um, his parents were of Moravian descent and practicing Catholics. Now his mother was Jewish, but then converted to Catholicism. Now, remember when I said that Long liked to tell tall tales and whatnot? Well, he has the best source in the world, which is the Bible. Of course. And... He said, um, th- this is a book that I've started dipping my toe into, which is Fritz Long, Nature of the Beast. I think it, 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 regardless of what you'll be able to dig up today further and do another book, like it's still an, an essential text. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it recounts that in the final years of his life, Long had written in German a 20 to 30 page short story called The Wandering Jew. It was a kind of a fable about a wandering Jew, according to Pierre Rissant. After Lang's death, Rissant asked Latte Lang's third wife if he might arrange for its publication. No, she replied, because Fritz would want it to be known as would want to be known as an atheist. Hmm. So this contradicts certain parts of Lang clinging to religion in certain respects. Um, in the films of Fritz Lang by Tom Gunning, um, there are allegories of, um, which is an art- article he did called Allegories of Vision and Modernity. Lang uh, cautions, uh, cautioned Jerry Prokosh, Jerry, don't forget the gods have not created men. Men have created the gods. Ooh. And a way to clarify this in certain respects is that he said like he wasn't, he was, he was not necessarily of faith but that he found the Bible to be a very good teaching tool for ethics. Yeah, and I think that that's, right away he's already he's already tapped into an idea that everybody else has picked on because religious re- religious themed films aside, using religious themes inside of otherwise different movies has proven to be a great grounding force some of the best films do come out of the idea of subverting gospel yeah um the coen brothers do that 
like it's an, like it's their breakfast. Oh yeah. You know, like um I think that when you utilize that format and technique, it plays into our knowledge of uh of broad religion mm-hmm. and gives us a grounding work yeah. for which to receive the art at times. I don't think it always works. Um, I think when you make a faith-based film, it's a it's flawed to an immense degree. Mm-hmm. But when you use it as a sparing source, it becomes a there something clicks differently, whether you're religious or not religious. Yeah. So it's interesting that Long kind of plays into that. Um, so he attends school, he graduates, and then he goes to the Technical University of Vienna for engineering before switching over to an art major. So he could have been a bomb maker, but instead he became an artist. Oh, um, yeah, the reverse Hitler. Yeah, the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, as uh, this part of the first meeting of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi Rally League, I want you to welcome our fiercest contributor, the one, the only anti-Hitler, Fritz Lang. Here he comes! <laughs> oh my God! I am not an animal. Oh, look at his mustache gap. <laughs> Oh my god, he doesn't even have one. He has a monocle. <gasps> it's like a mustache for your eye. Oh my god. <laughs> um, then he went to travel the world in Europe. Because why not? He's in Europe. He can travel, man. Yeah, he wants like to, it. Goes all throughout Europe, goes to Africa, goes to Asia. Uh, in 1910, he studies painting um, in Paris. Mm. Um, I'm sorry, in 1913, he pra- studies painting in Paris. Mm. Um, then comes World War I. Um, <laughs> or as it's also known, one of the wars Bart Simpson doesn't mention in Bart the General at the end of that episode. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> it, it, the, 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 the quote, if I'm remembering it correctly, is there are no good wars, only bad ones, with the following exceptions. The American Revolution, World War II, and the Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> World War One, though, you know, it's funny. I think that's a war that... It does, it does play heavily into today's film that we do have to talk about. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, like when we think about World War One, we do not think of it the same way we think of World War Two. No, definitely as not. A, as a culture, as young students, um, whether in whether we're whether you're st- whether anybody listening is still in high school or in college or whatever, there's a different perception of World War what World War Two is. Yeah. But World War One in in every single way possible is one of the most influential on cinema and history. Yeah. In many ways, it's more influential than World War II is today mm-hmm. um, because it helps define style and themes that then carry into World War II. Yeah. Um, but he returned to Vienna and volunteered for the Austrian army and fighting in Romania and Russia. Now, in Romania, he was wounded four times and then lost sight in his right eye. So this was the beginning of a, of a lifelong affliction with vision oh. so so that's where we get the monocle and then occasionally yeah. the eye patch yeah, yeah um if he had lived longer the bionic eye which would have <gasps> been can you imagine fritz lang with a bionic eye oh my god he could rule this world oh my god <laughs> oh my god it's robo lang is, is that what blowfield is based on <laughs> that's blowfelt oh sorry <laughs> That's okay. I died at the end of that new one. Oh, spoiler alert. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I forgot. Not everybody's seen that two and a half hour movie. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lose $100 million, I read. Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. I thought it was a big hit for people. What the it's heck? the highest grossing film of the year, but it's still going to lose $100 million well, for MGM. Of all, well, those delays, probably. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. MGM, um, it's almost as if the studio should have just stayed dead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> at a certain point, you've used up all your chances. I know it's it's kind of insane, and they're even they were bought by Amazon. So yeah. at this point, like they're it's Amazon's problem now. Yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, while he was in recovery in 1916, he wrote film scenarios. So he was starting to write mm. as a pro- as part of the process. And he's discharged in 1918 with a lieutenant rank. So he's Lieutenant Fritz Lang, um, which sounds like a Quentin Tarantino character that should have happened by now. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> lieutenant Fritz Lang. <laughs> I'm the anti. <laughs> Someone called uh, QT. Let him know about this amazing opportunity. What's that? Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Lieutenant Fritz Lang? Oh my God. Inglorious Bastard 2. Writing it, writing it, writing it, writing it, writing it. Hitler's not actually dead. He comes back as a zombie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, now he acts in Viennese theater, so he starts off as an actor. Oh. Um, and then he was hired by Decla Films, which is a Berlin-based company for Eric Palmer. Um, around this time, this is the weird thing that I, I dug a little bit into this. There's no clear answer, but... He married a woman named Lisa Rosenthal, a Jewish woman, in 1921, who died of a single gunshot wound, and it was determined that it was fired by a sidearm weapon from World War I. But the question is, why did that happen? <laughs> I didn't realize there was an unsolved mystery about the murder of his wife. Hold on one second. Is that Robert Stack? Henry, can you solve the mystery? No! <laughs> Absolutely not! <laughs> What if I gave you the time machine? Still no. Absolutely not. <laughs> this sounds really complicated. No one will ever know. <laughs> um, now, now we're dealing in the Weimar Republic years. And the Weimar years are the years before Nazis, the Nazis take power by gaining all that control within the council seats and then eventually overthrowing the government. Um, at this time, though, he, he does the writing stint. And then he joins Ufa amid the emergence of German expressionism, covering the main element of style within the century as each creation, each country's doing their own style at this point. We talked about how Japanese cinema mm-hmm. emerged with their style earlier than we, we we would relatively know. Yeah. Because we don't start receiving a bunch of Japanese films until after the war. Yeah. Um, uh, Sweden and Norway are developing their own kind of like meditative styles. Yeah. Um, Britain is kitchen sink until Hitchcock comes along and goes, say, what if I lured mur- murder mystery? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, French cinema actually pre, uh, pre French new wave. I'm not even exactly sure of what French cinema was up to a certain point. Oh, I mean, there's that whole idea that, uh, if you look at cinema across the board, only three countries you could go to any time after the birth of cinema, and there's always something good being made there, and that's America, France, and Japan. Yeah. And so I'm sure France developed their style day two. Yeah. And so yeah. they invented the camera day one. They invented style day two. Yeah, so. exactly. Then on the third day, they invented Maurice Chevalier. Yeah, and then, you know, eventually they... St- have done nothing of importance ever since. And so, well, I mean, John Luke Godard don't mind like me just movie. hating the French. Wow, so. uh, talk about a controversial opinion. Yeah. Now, Ufa, by the way, um, it's Ufa Gimbach, um, uh, is the film and television company. Um, it's it's derived from Universum Film AG, um, but it's just we we call it Ufa. Yeah. But it was a prime studio in Germany. Um so Lang getting in there was a good idea because he's going to help innovate this entire country style. Um and expressionism is the key one to come out of it. Another form of storytelling coming out of it is Brechtian storytelling mm-hmm. and Brechtian acting as yeah. it were. Um when asked about 
uh, M, if it was inspired by Brechtian uh, method, he uh, Lang kind of basically just said like, dude, it was like everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like you couldn't avoid that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which the com- which by the way, the commentary um, on the M Blu-ray uh, is a very valuable asset. Um, you have uh, film scholars Anton Keys and Eric uh, Rentschler. Uh, they they really deep dive into that thing. So if you've got the Blu-ray, I would recommend it. Interesting. I'm also going to tell Henry this in person, but I might oh. cut this out. The commentary is available on YouTube for some reason. Oh, okay. Because somebody just decided to rip that right, film with the commentary. Too, on. So. It's, I mean, I don't know if it's a copyright violation. I really don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but um, so expressionism is set up as the style of Germany. That's what they're producing. We've got Murnau. We've got Lang. We've got Pabst. Um, the... Uh, he started shifting between films of a fantasy nature and a thriller nature. So he makes films like Destiny, The Spider, Dr. Mabusa, The Gambler, um, Women in the Moon, uh, Denebel De- De- Golden. <laughs> Listen, I believe Gl- it. <laughs> so like- I was like saying to myself, if you get it wrong, just divert to Jerry Lewis and it'll solve yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, Metropolis. Yeah. Um, which is best known today as the aesthetic for the Alamo Draft House Westminster. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's one of the most influential sci-fi movies ever made. And um, but seriously, if you go to the Westminster Draft House, you yeah. can you can go inside Moloch. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> which seems like an ironic way to enter. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the oppressed masses. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I'm not going to fight with. Uh, it's a great aesthetic design. Yeah. I just don't Life know. Life imitates art. It, it does. I, I mean, I do like that we've got the robot up there. Yeah. Um, but in 1921, he also meets Thea von Harbaugh. Um, von Herber. Um, Thea von Harbaugh. God dang it. I'm sorry. If, apologies to the German community for both my accent and these pronunciations. You're losing all your German fans. And yeah, they're, they're pissed at me. And yeah. I'm very, I am sorry. Again, like if I do the German accent, it's not to denigrate. It's just... We've got to give Fritz Lang an American voice right now, and it's, yeah. this is the closest I can get. Yeah. Um, we didn't do any Japanese accents during the no, we didn't, the and, no, we didn't, and we will not, and we won't. <laughs> Listen, give us some credit. No, so no, like, no. We try our best. Here. Listen, after what happened have, in Germany in World War II, we're allowed to do the German accent. <laughs> like it's a free pass for like a couple hundred years. Yeah, we're allowed hey, to do the German accent. I've got, a, I've got a good idea. How about I point out that our country is not innocent of anti-German sentiment in World War One, where there are caricatures of German. Uh, people made out to look like beasts. Yeah. They would say, beware the Hun menace and stuff like that. Like, so yeah. there is like, we're not innocent of stereotyping the Germans that way. Um, but now Nazis are no longer uh, really German in America. Now they wear trucker caps, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's a story for another day. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he meets his wife, Theo von Harbaugh, um, where she and long end up co-writing all the films made from 21 to 33. So Metropolis, the film we're talking about today, M, Women in the Moon, Thea's on top of all of this. She mm. was one of the most influential parts of Long's career in Germany. Interesting. Um, Metropolis, though, went over budget because of course it did. Well, yeah, it's Metropolis. <laughs> so. um, but also the film Spies and Women in the Moon um, also failed to recoup the budget. So he has three flops in a row. Spies is actually made as the in-between between that and Women in the Moon. Two very influential sci-fi films, Metropolis and Women in the Moon. Spies is just a it's a it's described in the Kino Lorber collection as a small film with a lot of action. Yeah. Uh and all three fail to recoup their budget. 
And uh, given how they were trying with Women in the Moon, it's amazing that movie wasn't as big as it was because they actually brought over, from what I was reading into this, they brought over an actual rocket scientist of the era when space travel was like hotly anticipated. (laughs) Um, And that guy convinced Long and Ufa to finance an actual rocket that could be launched at the premiere. And instead, what they ended up doing was financing further research for rocket for, for Oh my god, could you imagine going to the premiere of this movie <laughs> and they just launch a rocket? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to uh be prepared for an amazing experience with women in the moon. We need more promotional rockets uh, right. in marketing campaigns, I think. Do you think it would have been great if we had actually built a Starship Enterprise for the Star Trek premieres? Yes! <laughs> I fully think we should do these things. You know, like surgically graft Vulcaneers onto Zachary Kinto. I think when Armageddon came out, we should have blown up the moon. <laughs> so... Oh, Moonfall's coming out. Oh, listen, oh, studios. We can we perfect can, marketing opportunity. Guys, we can crash the moon. We we can destroy this already collapsing society and promote your movie. See Moonfall <laughs> before we all die. <laughs> so. Roland Emmerich. Yes, I was very inspired by Women in the Moon, and also just it's it's about the moon falling. Yeah. Who wouldn't want? The moon to fall. Yeah, fuck the moon. <laughs> what the moon ever do for us? Tide. Great. Thanks, moon. Yeah, James Hart might is if James Hart is listening to this, he's just had like five heart attacks. Like yeah. fuck the moon. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, though, but basically, financial flop after financial flop. Uh, oddly enough, Long tries to say to Ufa, "No, it's your fault." <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> and he tried to point out like misuse of funds and like misappropriated amounts of the budget. Like so much jargon passes through Lang's mouth <laughs> that uh, it's discovered like, well, we can't really get him out of his contract. So we're going to do spies and women in the moon with him because that's post Metropolis. He tried to blame Metropolis's problems on Ufa, <laughs> which yeah. I think it's both. I don't yeah. think it's one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> um. Because uh, Ufa could have easily said, no, we're not greenlighting that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, so he ends up leaving Ufa and joining Nero Films. Um, and Nero Films, I have a little bit of note on that. Um, Nero Films is a company formed by Heinrich Nebezal and Richard Oswald, and it produced films starting in 1927 for directors such as Pabst, um, uh, under the prime supervision of Heinrich's son, Seymour Nezabal, who was interviewed in the Criterion and tell, hearing him tell the stories, not just of this film, but also the remake of them, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. Um, he, he, of them. Oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a noir, uh, 50s film. That, well, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But, but it's also like, it's available on YouTube for free. There's oh, no DVD right. available of it. There's oh. several different factors going on yeah. there um but regardless this is the kid the, seymour sees like the film production unfolding under his father's company and whatnot and he makes important decisions like pandora's box and west front 1918 by pabst are yeah. done at that studio um so lang 
is not just at a crossroads with switching studios. He's also at the dawn of sound. Yeah. At the time that Women in the Moon came out, he refused to put a soundtrack underneath it. That was not a good idea because sound had already infiltrated the German market by 1929. Yeah. And Lang was just like, fuck no. But uh, the public was like, fuck yes. And so he found himself in the tricky position of being forced into the sound market. But he basically says, if I'm going to make a sound film, I'm going to make it an experiment. Because one thing about M that we should get right off the bat, this is a sound movie, but like two thirds of it are a sound movie and the other third is a silent movie. Yeah. Um, and you can like divvy that up like fractionally, like almost to a T. Yeah. Um, and the way it uses sound, which we'll talk about as we go through the plot is very unique. Um, but the early origins of M as a concept, um, the first indication of the film's production is an ad that's placed in the newspaper announcing that his next film would be murder und uns, Murderer Among Us, um, which would be about a child murderer. And this advert begun a series of protest letters and threats being sent his way. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I don't understand. You guys don't want to see something exhilarating and thrilling? Yes, sure, it's a very dark subject matter, but this is going to be a message movie while also being a CD crime drama. Ooh. <laughs> yes, but um, yes, please tell me to go fuck myself, uh, German public, please. You know, you try to give the audience what they want. No, funnily enough, they weren't wanting this because the the city of Ger- the, the the city of Germany, the country of Germany, had been plagued by several different true crime stories of their own. There were a lot of serial killers in Germany around this time, and the economic state of the Weimar Republic does not help that. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I'll point this out right now. In researching for this film, Long spent eight days inside a mental institution where he met with several child murderers, including Peter Curtin. Curtin's own case is alluded to in that commentary as the key source for it. However, Long does say, at the time I decided to use the subject matter of M, there were many serial killers terrorizing Germany. Harman, Grossman, Curtin, and Dunkey. So... There's an amalgamation of things going on here, but the Curtin murders in particular fall into very specific territory because it is a killer whose reign of terror took place between February of 1929 into May of 1930. Wow. So that's over a year. Yeah. He it's a, the trial for him lasts only lasts only 10 days from the 13th of April in 31 to the 22nd of April in 31. M is released in May of 1931. Hmm. There's an immediacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way they uh balance this contradiction uh in the commentary and it's a I mean it makes complete sense is because the curtain trial was so close in tide to the release of the film. Yeah. They they bought into that because something that we should get off the bat, this movie wasn't extremely popular when it was first released. Yeah, It was mixed. Re- it had mixed reception. Uh, and it was considered a message movie. It wasn't considered like thrilling entertainment. So like full disclosure, M is not metropolis. Yeah. Um, Me- metropolis for its time was thrilling, exciting. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Earlier films by long were adventure films or, very dark expressionist visions like Dr. Mabusa. Yeah. Uh, so he's making a message movie. And, you know, I mean, we have this debate today about like, you know, like not every movie has to have a message in it. And it's yeah. like, yeah, but sometimes the best films end up having the message yeah. in them. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's not even about morality. Sometimes it has a message about the state of the human condition. Yeah. But um, so uh, he takes inspiration from all of these different figures and amalgamates a message film surrounding the dangers that lurk around every corner in this particular era of Germany. Um, which is interesting considering how things allude to a society decaying that will then be on the verge of being thrust into the Nazi party. Uh, now it's also clear to point out that M has a lot of allusions to what would end up happening in Nazi Germany, but the film also at the same time is, uh, actively rather than retroactively us viewing it through world war two lens. It's actively commenting on world war one. Yeah. Um, and, I think that a big key thing in all of that, uh, how you allude to this, whether it's World War One or World War Two, can also be a trace to fact um, and to fiction, depending on what version of Lang you want to believe. Now, this the film was supposed to, according to the cinema of Fritz Lang by Paul M. Jensen, he had he uh, wanted to film it at Stockton Studios, but was refused. And he and in Long's words, I confronted the head of the studio, and the head of the studio revealed that he was a member of the Nazi Party, and he said that uh, we do not like this because we saw the title of your film, Murder Among Us, and we think that it's alluding to us, the Nazis, and that is not true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were alternate titles for this movie floating around and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Lang's story, the Nazis then finally said, okay, you can film in Stockton. Yeah. So they filmed in Stockton for six weeks. Um, now, in addition, we'll talk about it a little bit. There are real criminals used in this film as extras. And during the course of production, 25 extras were arrested during filming. Oh, <laughs> Just imagine if you're trying to make a film, you're in the middle of a shot, and then all of a sudden the actual police come in. And, oh, my God. It's like, oh, cut, cut. Peter, you didn't tell me you were wanted for a robbery? Oh, my God. I knew you were a criminal, but I didn't know you were a wanted criminal. God, what a logistical nightmare. <laughs> oh, God damn it, Thea. This keeps happening to me. Man. <laughs> it's I, I can't imagine dealing with it. I know that we use realistic aesthetic, like we'll cast non-actors in roles. Like, I mean, the most recent example being um, Nomadland, where yeah. actual Nomadland-ites um, yeah. um, are... Uh, actors in the film, yeah, um, and and many cases portraying actual people that are in the book it's based on, yeah, um, or in um, Dolomite is my name, they used actual um, uh, homeless people or uh, like people in yeah. strife, um, or like even and, like a, like Sean Barker's entire filmography, and uh, yes, like that's another that was another one, and uh, watching the trailer for Red Rocket, I was just like, oh yeah, we're going back to this world, aren't we? Yeah. Um, so uh, additionally, you have all of these different elements to create a perfect crime drama, but one key ingredient is missing and it comes in the form of Peter Lorre. (laughs) This is his debut guys. Yay. (laughs) Peter Lorre. We're going to talk about me. Do you want to know that my name is not even Peter Lorre? What is it? Laszlo Lowenstein. Laszlo Lowenstein is a much better name. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Lorre is a good name. Laszlo Lowenstein, though? That's great. That's a sex icon right yeah. there. <laughs> Anyone named Laszlo is a sex icon. 
Well, <laughs> regardless, I wouldn't keep it for long. Laszlo wasn't a great name for us back then. Yeah, one be is. one because it was a little too long on the marquee, and second of all, anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> one thing would have led to another. And, yeah. Uh, I, I I looked at my I, I looked at the people who were giving me work, and I was just like, guys, I'm I'm not Peter. I'm Laszlo, and they said, no, you're Peter. You're Peter now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's tragic. But yes, he's born in the town of Roshagi, Lipta County. Uh, and his parents were, Jew- were Jewish. His father was a lieutenant in the Austrian army, which gave him necessity to be on maneuver uh, maneuver training leaves. And uh, he was also the chief bookkeeper for a local textile mill. And his mother died when he was four. And his father remarried a woman that Laszlo never got along with. And... Um, and then one day they ran a motel together. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but now the father moved the family to Vienna upon the anticipation of the Second Balkan War because he knew what was coming. Because if the Balkan War is coming, the big one's coming. Yeah. Um, so he ends up joining the conflict and he serves from 1914 to 1915 in the winter at the Eastern Front itself and ends up having to be discharged. Um, now, Years go by, Peter Lorre begins acting on the stage in Vienna at age 17 for the Viennese Arch Nouveau artist and puppeteer Richard Teschner. Um, now, when we get into the late 20s, he moves first to Breslau and then to Zurich, and he begins working with German play- play- playwright Bertolt Brecht. Um, for Brechtian acting fans out there, there's your Brecht. Woo! Brecht heads, let it loose. Brecht in the his down. Um, and uh, he would adopt the Brechtian acting style, which we talked a lot more about <clears throat> on Night of the Hunter. And I'm still not even sure how to fully classify it for people, but it's an immersion. It's yeah. an immersion in it, and there's also a political statement attached to it in the process. Yeah. Um, and uh, he appeared in the Brecht play as Man Equals Man and as Dr. Nakamura in the musical Happy End. Oh. And unfortunately, this isn't the last time Peter Lorre would be donning yellow face. But uh. um, stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm sorry, but he's done it. Um, yeah. The, you, we, you've heard of Charlie Chan. You've also heard of Mr. Modo. And- Listen, I mean, we were. We should all admit, as a society, we were fine with yellow face until basically 2005. And so back in this then. I'm not going to blame him too heavily for that. And so yeah, we as a society and we as a humanity are just truly awful. Yeah. And I think we can admit that we've made a lot of mistakes. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Now, um, so he's working in theater. Yeah. He's, he's making his way through the theater scene. Yeah. Fritz Long sees him and says, I must have him. Yeah. <laughs> I must have him for the killer in my picture. He had him in mind. He didn't even bother with a screen test. He just said, nope, you, yeah. Laszlo, get over here. Oh, wait, Peter, whatever your name is, get over here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he'd already changed his name to Peter Laurie. It was before. very confusing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it was very confusing. I had an identity crisis. You know that? Let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you know the song Man or Muppet? No. It's kind of like the Man or Muppet song in the Muppets from 2011. Oh, okay. Which is my favorite movie up here in That heaven. makes sense. <laughs> and I keep asking myself, am I a Peter or am I a Laszlo? <laughs> you listen, we all come to that realization one day that we are not a Laszlo. No, so. regardless, no matter how much I try to decide who I am, I still 
can definitely tell you one thing. Sydney Green Street is a stupid, you blundering, you little fuckhead. Well, of course. I, I can't blame you for that thought. <laughs> oh, yes, my good boy. Yes, I'm still that all these years later up here as we sip pina coladas in heaven. Ooh. <laughs> um, that's, that's how I want to imagine their li- afterlife. Yeah. I, I want to imagine that they're solving heaven mysteries or something like that. I mean, that. obviously. I'm not a believer in heaven, but I'm a believer in celebrity heaven for some reason. <laughs> I also love the idea that there are mysteries in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a mystery, Henry. Like, There's never not a mystery in my yeah, head. Like, um, now, uh, so production begins, and we'll just go ahead and start diving into the film of M. Uh, so right off the bat, he uh, Fritz Long enters the world of sound with a gong, and that was indicator of uh, news announcements at the top of the hour. So he's bringing us into a real world environment. Interesting. Um, and uh, I didn't know that because yeah. I've never really heard any German radio from yeah. that era. I don't know how much of it was saved or anything. Yeah. But um, we have these children that are playing an elimination game. Uh, like the man in black is going to get you if you don't eat your piece, like that yeah. that type of vibe. And it immediately, like uh, literally from the first thirty seconds, we're treated to something that we do get years later in the form of one, two, Freddy's coming for you uh, mm-hmm. in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So like this idea of a haunting nursery rhyme, setting the tone for the horror and the terror that's abound, um, and. We are also given a entry into this world of Weimar era Germany. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of decay. Um, there's a lot of tension surrounding it. But there's also this cultural revitalization going around. Mm-hmm. I frankly, like, I do feel like it's no different than 1920s America to a yeah. certain respect. There's incredible highs and extreme lows. Yeah, But at but there's a certain point where Germany's already in depression. Weimar era Germany's already in a depression when bread's like a billion marks. Yeah, you know, like that's that's the impetus for them to cling to either the Nazi Party or even the Communist parties that were circling around Germany at that time. Yeah, because that in- that intellectualism also caused the ripples to different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, so we have the this. There's a calm here in this one moment of the scheme of elimination, but it does feel off. And then we're immediately thrust into the very nature of this plot. We have intercutting between a mother doing laundry, waiting for a child to come home and a child, Elsie Beckman bouncing her ball down the street. And the ball uh, is being bounced up against a poster that says wanted 10,000 marks for the murder of these two children. And immediately we are treated to a lovely, dark, sinister shadow of Peter Lorre going, that's a nice ball. What's your name? Elsie Beckman. And then we get intercut back to the mother. And actually she hears the children singing the song and she thinks it's a terrifying song. Like it's a horrible song. Why are you singing that song? And one of the neighbor women goes like, just calm down. Be thankful they're singing at all. Like and that we can hear them. So there's a theme that runs throughout this film of essentially vigilance and protecting your children. And Henry and I haven't really known an era where we weren't under lock and key from the parental spectrum. It's amazing to think that 
as society streamlined itself from the earliest parts of the 19th to 20th century, that anything that was different or out of line would cause that kind of parent that panic not i don't want to say paranoia because it's it happens but there's a panic that ensues and it and it uh immediately leads to security and bolting doors and such we talk about how in america like we used to leave the front door open or you know, like Michael Moore does that in that Bowling for Columbine documentary, I think, where he's just like, you can go up to any door in Canada and knock on the door and they'll just let you into the house. But like that era that they supposedly have happened to it, like a lot of that culminated into a big a, a big realization by the 70s when everything was going down in our country with serial killers, murders, different crimes being revealed through mass media to like, you know, stranger danger is a big thing. And I think that it's interesting to see <clears throat> that as far back as this, there were still concerns of that. This isn't a new phenomenon of the post-war generation. This is something that was there in Germany at the time. And I I was curious how you like did that did that even like cross your mind as an era that like that you would have thought would did it cross your mind that like this kind of subject matter would still be would be would would have been handled this far back uh i mean frankly i mean this is one of those subject matters that is rarely even talked about now and so like it's like it's always one of those topics that with film we tend to avoid Mm -hmm. or we try to like kind of skirt around or imply kind of this kind of storyline so i mean to be doing it this early uh, yeah and to be kind of doing it like this full force in a yeah. way. And, 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 you know, like obviously we are talking about a child killer, Yeah, which I'm, I am going to be putting a trigger warning up at the front of this episode because I really don't want to oh, harm yeah. anybody's mental, m- mental state by any stretch. Um, at this time and even at, far into the eighties, you know, when you say child killer, it implies that it implies the worst of the spectrum, which yeah. is, which, which is molestation. Yeah. And, um, in fact, it's one of those reasons why people cite that the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street isn't as good as the original because they just outright say he was molesting children. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not here to get into a debate on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, that here, calling it a child killer, we already know what's going on. They, in several points of dialogue in this film, they allude to perversion and pathology. Mm-hmm. And we get, the, we get the idea. Yeah. Lang's not, Lang's not stupid. When he uses dialogue, he uses it where it's needed and where it's needed is here because this is i don't want to say this is the first serial killer movie but it's among the first sound films that's a serial killer movie very well could be. i mean it's very you've, i mean you've got the lodger in yeah. 1927 yeah um which right, is yeah. but that's also dealing with something a little bit different um yeah. it's going off of a base level and also it's you know hitches Hitch is concerned about that story, but he's also concerned about telling a different kind of story for London and actually yeah. using a lot of techniques that Long innovated, like yeah. Long, uh, Paul Lenny, um, and Pabst, like folks like those who had already innovated stuff when he was when he visited Germany, he took back to Britain. And here, Long is innovating yet again because a lot of this imagery is stuff you'll see in Hitchcock movies down the line. Yeah. And more specifically, seeing the face of the killer. Early on, yeah. we already know who the killer is. Yeah, like the mystery is kind of 
It isn't approached as a mystery. It's approaching it as. It, what's funny, though, is that that's the same trick that they use in Silence of the Lambs, and it's an yeah. amazing trick. Yeah. Because it, it's partially because it's based on how the book is written. Yeah. But also, like, we don't know Buffalo Bill's real name. We just yeah. know that's Buffalo Bill, and yeah, we know yeah. that he can't lift that couch in there because it's Ted yeah. Bundy. But, you know, like, that that particular type of imagery and portrayal hasn't gone away. Yeah. Um. So... Peter Lorre, uh, as the killer here, is taking the child to go get a balloon. And I made a note about this being the creepiest balloon in history. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it for people. It's like a, it's supposed to be a man or a boy. Yeah. With dangly, floaty arms. But the face looks like it's seen the horrors of every war that happened before and will happen going forward. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's like the art on top of Tofurky. Yeah. Uh, when you see those dead eyes, like it, really, they're they they say they're trying to sell you tofurkey, but yeah. what they really mean is kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so that so they get the balloon from a blind man, which I'm not a German speaker, so which was clear by the fact that I couldn't pronounce names earlier, like yeah. an idiot. Um, but uh, blind is German for blind. Oh, I guess I don't know. All right, <laughs> it was one fact I didn't look into because I was just like, I just took it for granted that blind is blind. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think about it. Um, but um, we have him as he's doing this. By the way, he's using a limotif, limotif of uh, uh, in the Hall of the Mountain King um, by Grieg. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you hear that. <laughs> It's it's playing throughout the film as an indicator for the killer. It's a, it's a it's a it's a, it's an indicator for yeah. us, um, which again is another inspiration that really permeates in sound films to this very minute. Like shoot to thrill isn't shoot to thrill unless Iron Man jumps in somehow, yeah. um, and so we ostensibly have the mother calling out for a child, wondering where her child is, and it intercuts with empty shots of her house. You can see the empty uh, space where the laundry room is, yeah. And it's got it's just it's it's just devoid of activity. An empty table, and then it cuts to a ball rolling from our frame, yeah. And then a top of an image from down, looking up at telephone poles and that creepy balloon floating around in the wind. Most of those sequences are shot silent, mm. and I think that that's kind of like. For for listeners who don't know, Henry also does a lot of sound work. Yeah, and like I do want to get your impression of sound on the on this film as we go through this, but this is like this is like a masterpiece with sound. Oh yeah, because it's not it's it's using pure cinema technique the yeah. way Hitchcock did, um, which indicates that Hitchcock saw M and said, "This is how you do it to achieve to achieve the closest thing to pure cinema, which is as little title cards as possible and primarily a visual art. Mm-hmm. This is how you do it." And sparing sound is a Hitchcock trademark. He'll shut off the sound at will. It's like a it's like a button he can't help but not push. He's just like, "I fucking do it." <laughs> yeah. Like, and Long apparently had that same thing in mind with his first sound film. So we see that the killer has struck. Another life is taken. The news starts reporting on it. And immediately we are thrust into the true crime world yeah. and how it it creates panic, uh, hysteria, false accusation. Yeah. Um, that one of the most haunting shots in this movie, weirdly, is 
a man is was apparently given a the the police were given an anonymous letter and sent to a man's house and it's just like so like literally everybody suspecting everybody and it's personified in that scene in uh the dining hall or like the gentleman's club or whatever the heck it is um where all those gentlemen are arguing over politics and then arguing over who could be the killer and then one of them just flats out says you're the child killer yeah. <laughs> like you are yeah. like it's abrasive yeah it's very unapologetic um there's a shot of a man talking to a little girl giving her the time and genuinely looking like he's trying to help her like yeah. just like do you need help getting home yeah. and a big big burly man comes up and goes like what 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 are you talking to that little girl for and the shot down on him is it's this wormy little german guy like in america the 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 equivalent would be a guy going like well you know sure everybody's just trying to help yeah, <laughs> like, like you know like a millhouse yeah. kind of like oh uh-huh, i'm sorry yeah, like, <laughs> um i i i associate it kind of like like anybody who's ever put upon in cinema that that's the angle that we're getting off of this guy and then a crowd starts encircling him they call for the police a policeman gets off of a double decker bus and th- there's this it's just mass hysteria so when he's using that sound you're hearing this overlapping dialogue oh yeah the subtitles on the criterion can't keep up with it yeah it's incredible. Like there's sparse amounts of dialogue in, in crowd scenes. Yeah. Everything else is super specific. Yeah. And well, I mean, it's like there's that overlapping like dialogue type idea that they kind of throw into it, which is an extremely difficult thing to pull off. Uh, I don't know how we do it today, let alone then. Well, I mean, like the every the like my professors I talk to who do like sound professionally and have won Oscars for it. They say like uh, when you compare the going back to how like it's ahead of its time kind of thing, like like uh, Robert Altman's style is so defined by overlapping dialogue. Yeah, and it's. I've heard stories and I've read about how that sound mixer would do those scenes and it's no one can do that. It's there's a reason that man died uncomfortably. And so like, um, and so in order to do this kind of work, it's very difficult. Did he have to sacrifice one of his hearts Yeah, in order to do that? And that's why he had to have the heart replacement. Oh my God. Yeah. So the so they took the heart, yeah. But then he got a new heart to make Prey Home Companion. But the, the devil said, "You cheated." Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that son is why God hates you. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson just clasped Robert Altman in his hands on yeah. the set of Prey Home Companion. Was like, "I shall avenge you." Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so he. I don't know what deal Paul Thomas Anderson made to make licorice pizza, but I'm excited that we're getting licorice pizza. Yeah. Um, and because uh, I want to see Bradley Cooper play John Peters, because who the fuck doesn't want to yeah. see John <laughs> Peters smashing car windows? Yeah. <laughs> that shot in the trailer just gets me every time. Um, so uh, we are then thrust into the political outcry yeah. that comes of this. Now, the Peter Curtin story in particular, the true life story, this caused political upheaval too because of it, how long it took to catch him. So you were you were gasping at that time frame. Now we're used to in a day and age of like serial killers getting away f- with their crimes for 20 to 40 years before they're ever caught. Um, one of the best examples um, being that case that Patton Oswalt's yeah the um, uh, Gold State Killer the, the Gold State Killer yeah the one that Patton Oswalt's um, wife uh, uh, former uh, wife Michelle Nakamura yeah yeah. 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 Um, 
But uh, so there was political outcry about police inefficiency and not catching the killer. And we're kind of experiencing that at the very moment that we're recording this episode because of um, a couple of different cases that are. Yeah, unfortunately. Like, yeah, very so unfortunately. You can point to other places. And so. Yeah. And, and I mean, for a modern audience like listening for an audience listening to this 50 years down the line, if anybody's listening to it, other than my great grandchildren or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Um, they. uh you know, if you look at a Twitter feed on true crime, particularly with the suicide of the guy who killed his uh, girlfriend, yeah, um, the amount of speculation, conspiracy, and also outrage towards the police, mm-hmm. and at the same time, also we're dealing with currently with the verdict of Kyle Rittenhouse, yeah, um, which you know, rightfully so, is frustrating people, yeah, to an insane degree because it's a weird verdict yeah. to be reaching at all, to say the least. Um, but, uh, the, the bottom line is, is that like, there's always a cry for like, what are the police doing? Why don't they catch the real killer? That's a thought that permeates the criminal underground of this movie. Yeah. But before we get to them, we're dealing with the secretary, uh, the secretary, uh, like the secretary, like a sec, the secretary of, uh, of government here. Yeah. Um, I don't know the full political spectrum that they're dealing with in this movie. It's kind of ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, what, I, I can relate whenever I'm watching like an Asian film or whatever, and if they get into politics, I'm like, I'll just nod my head and go along with it. Like, yeah, I understand. Well, I understand the stakes. So. They, they, they kind of like keep those things ambiguous for good yeah, reason. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like, unless you're dealing with a film that's entrenched in the country that it's being made in oh, yeah. and it's being specific about the story, you know, we're at a, we're at a disadvantage as Americans where we're very lazy <laughs> to yeah. a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but we're also intelligent enough to look into things. And if we're really compelled to, we'll look into that spectrum here. It's just a very simple Mr. Secretary and Mr. Commissioner. We know what a commissioner is. It's the commissioner of the police. Yeah. And we see this procedural montage, which is kind of like a training video in a little way. Yeah. Um, about how the crime is being detected. We're seeing the formation of what every crime drama ever does going forward, showing police procedural. Yeah, I would say that the crime thriller and the police procedural fully intermeshed by the 70s, mm-hmm. like fully integrate. Yeah, you yeah. have early instances like The Enforcer yeah, um, yeah. with Humphrey Bogart, um, but you really get a full spectrum of it with dragnet to a degree, but that's very by the, by the book. It's dragnet is kind of the training montage here. And then you get the evolution to a period where we have things like Zodiac. Yeah. Like, which I do, I do hold up as the prime example, not just because it's one of my favorite movies, but it is like that movie is about procedure and also how things fall through the craps cracks and misinformation. Yeah. Um, so we see this training, and I wrote down some statistics that they listed on here, Ooh. which which made me, in a lot of ways, feel for our friend Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> and the shit that he goes through, like regardless of opinion about police behavior. Yeah, being a policeman can't be an easy job. Yeah, um, like objectively, like yeah. there there are factors that are within that, um, and uh. You know, they are going through the different facts. They've alluded to the fact that he's written letters to the press. So there's the Jack the Ripper mentality or the Zodiac killer yeah. mentality yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would come later. The, the the killer is writing letters to the police like, you'll never catch me. The, the police failed to publish my previous letters, so I'm writing to you now, the press. And that's part of what instigates further outrage yeah because now we're giving him attention yeah which which falls into that whole like split definitive of like you know what we don't want 
too much attention given to the killer, but also we want to know everything about this killer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the ever uh ever onward cycle of true crime. <laughs> Yeah. Um, which has both its positives and its negatives. Yeah. Um, but they're going through the different ways that they're going through this uh, the investigation from handwriting experts, which gave me another Zodiac wink. Uh, they're doing they're using a lot of protractors yeah. to, to indicate. <laughs> yeah. I, I literally wrote a note protractor, the motion picture. Yeah. I mean, never on screen before. Have you seen so many protractors and ever. never? In my life since, have I seen that as many protractors? So <laughs> we had them in school and in M, and that's it. Yeah. Well, I was required to buy them for school. I don't know if I ever used them in school. So you used them to make boobs. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> you said they were figure eights with just two little dots in the middle, but we all knew. <laughs> Listen, I don't know. No comment. <laughs> I uh, I refused. You just take the fifth, like uh, Robert De Niro in The yeah. Irishman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what color is my pen? <laughs> um, and uh, but they have witnesses coming forward, and the commissioner goes, "You don't seem to un- have a clear picture of the enormous obstacles confronting our forces." Do Do you realize, for example, regarding the route that the child took home, that there are fifteen conflicting uh, eyewitness accounts alone? Let me give you a random example. Testimony number 1,478 in the Breckman murder case. 1,478 witnesses testifying. A lot so of people. You, you know that montage in Zodiac where they're like, I'm the Zodiac killer. Or here's how you can catch the Zodiac killer. That was my immediate go-to. Yeah. Like, just like flat out like that kind of like people trying to help yeah but clearly not helping yeah and the conflict in particular in this example is two gentlemen fighting over what color her cap was was it red or was it green red green red green and you have that um demi does this in silence of the lambs where it's the dead on yeah uh angle to the camera like so it indicates a conversation intimacy there that he the cutting yeah is razor sharp on oh yeah um and then it obviously gets them nowhere. They've said that they've had over 1,500 detailed leads in 60 volumes, which you can now buy through Time Life. Um, and the uh, they show this further series of montages before they cut to the criminal underworld. Um, now, there is a basis for this. And I thought I didn't know anything about this. And I don't know if you did either, but we're about to learn if we didn't know. Um, so... The gangs are inspired by the Ring Vervin, uh, Ring Verin, which is criminal gangs operating in the late 19th and early 20th century in Germany during the Weimar Republic. They were convict associations initially formed in the 1890s to aid reintegration into society, but would become a convenient front for criminality. Hmm. I.e., mobs yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i just didn't know that they had a specific term for how yeah, it was going down in the weimar republic yeah much of the gangster this is a secret gangster movie in yeah. the process yeah but this time the gangsters are on our side man team gangster <laughs> um can you imagine at last Maybe maybe all those guys who thought Goodfellas was a party boy movie were right. You know, maybe yeah. they are the good guys this yeah, whole time. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah, or maybe they're idiots. Now, um, and the uh, Irishman says we all die happy. So, 
<laughs> so, oh yeah, when he's looking outside his door at the end of the Irishman, he's looking at a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, man, what a life I've led. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing if you sat for that whole three and a half hours yeah. of that brilliant genius movie, and then all of a sudden Frank Sheeran just goes like, man, it don't get better no better than this. <laughs> credits yeah <laughs> in the still of the night yeah it's great and then it just goes into a huge dance remix by lady gaga yeah of the five satins yeah like do all the credits roll you see young robert de niro dancing with young joe pesci and so <laughs> young al pacino is laughing yeah and of then he gets angry but then he laughs again yeah of course <laughs> anna paquin says more than one word yeah <laughs> no um but no, like, but the 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 criminal underworld in this film I find interesting because we find ourselves in this question of just like who's the real criminal here? <laughs> is it the is it the child killer or is it the pickpocket? You know, like, and I'm and I'm like there are differentiations here. <laughs> like, I I love the way they shoot this raid on the underworld. It's like very oh, yeah. unsettling. Oh, it's yeah. I think a lot of allusions to what end up happening in Nazi Germany come from this yeah. scene because there is that shot where they're coming up the hole, the hole that go the the stairway that goes down into the underground club. Yeah. And then they're going up and then they're immediately pushed back and you have long pushing those cops into frame. Yeah. And there is an intimidation factor this is used for expressionism, but it ends up becoming something that I'd have to assume Lenny Riefenstahl saw this movie because yeah. that shot on the street of the policeman approaching in a line. Mm -hmm. And then he has a side angle from an alley looking up and you have the cops coming in that same line, but it's at an angle which is an inefficient way to march, by the way. You can't uh, march in a diagonal line yeah. like that. It's not an efficient way to march your police. No, no, no. That's, I mean, that it's a straight line or nothing. Yeah. But, you know, Long doesn't care about efficiency. He cares about vertical lines. Yeah. Expressionism. Yeah. Hey, Henry, did you know I helped invent expressionism in cinema? Oh. Yes. I, yes. I, I How kind fun. Of, yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of a genius. Oh, yeah. good for you. Yeah, I know exactly. But anyway, I'm not here to hum, humble brag. Is yeah. that what they say? <laughs> um, so they start, uh, we, we get the entry of uh, Inspector Lohman, um, who, we you know, cast members in this film are kind of, uh, tricky for me because i don't know all these actors yeah. um and i it would probably be incumbent on me to do little side episodes where we have um uh focuses on some of these different actors but otto wernick is somebody that i do know because of the testament of dr mabusa yeah uh and uh he you know i he's got a face about him that i just admire like there's an expression about it in mabusa it's something different here he's 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 your constable he's he's your he's your policeman yeah um loman is inspired by ernst Gennat, mm. who was a chief inspector for the berlin police mm. for 30 years and was one of the innovators in modern detective uh detective detective uh, methodology and criminal procedure like murder procedure and investigation yeah i don't know technical terms guys i'm a i'm a film buff not a not a tech buff not a tech buff no um but one of the things he developed uh was a car that was equipped with all of the tools needed to investigate a crime scene 
something we take for granted today. Um, I don't remember what the German translation is, but or the German word is for it, but it translates into murder car. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you imagine just going like there's a scene. Uh, there's a cr- Oh, my God. There's been a killing here. Get the murder car. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're going to kill us more. No, 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 no. The murder car is just for all the tools that we yeah. use to investigate the murder. Yeah. That's I, why it's called the murder car. We need more murder cars in cinema, <laughs> we need I think. more murder cars. <laughs> Not in L.A. traffic. Hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <the> 405. <laughs> hey, this is Ed McMahon. Hey, <laughs> now that yeah, the 405 is a fucking travesty upon human earth. Um, what can you do? Yeah, but hey, murder. Almost as bad as Weimar Germany. Yeah, <laughs> it's Weimar Germany and the 405, and occasionally 225 going into uh, Aurora. Yeah, <laughs> but so, but we're not here to talk about the highways in Colorado. Um, but no, uh, so they start investigating him and they're checking their IDs and whatnot. One guy gets through because his his ID is clearly a fake. The other one gets through. Because almost initially, because he's got everything in order, but then Loman's such a good detective, he's just like, wait a minute. He remembers a case about a person who stole expensive furs. Mm. And that guy's got a pretty expensive fur on. Yeah. So <laughs> you're going to have to come down to the station. Motherfucker. <laughs> the furs always get you. Yeah. The fur, well, uh, caught by the fuzz. Go <laughs> <laughs> one. You got it. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh, God, I'm listening. I like Lang, so I'm listening to this one. You guys are just kidding the pun game today. Bravo. Bravo to you all. Um, yeah, no, so we get this. Uh, we've, we've finished through this raid. Everybody's fucking pissed off at this one killer. Meanwhile, you have you, you have Peter Laurie making faces in the mirror trying to s- suss out his psychology. That shot of him looking in the mirror, by the way, as they're going through who this criminal must be, what kind of pathology is underneath him. It, it, there is something very, very sinister about that that we take for granted. Like We will do cutaways like that to this day. To the point of even cutting away to scenes of Ted Levine tucking his junk underneath his, uh, in between his legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start seeing that this is affecting everybody. The police are under stress. The city is under stress. The government is under stress. And the criminals are losing money. And that's not a good thing, you see. Yeah. You can't be a good criminal if you're losing money. It makes you a bad criminal. <laughs> makes you bad at your job. And these guys are not bad at their jobs. They're no, experts. No. They're experts, my friend. They're so much experts that they've had to call their own town hall meeting, <laughs> which we, we would equivoc- equivocate to a meeting of the different heads of a crime organization in a Godfather yeah, movie. So, like, you know, it's I'm not saying this innovates it because mafias existed in Sicily yeah. um, and mobs existed in America at this time. But we're getting a toned down version of it in Germany. Yeah. Um, and we have a group of seedy characters Led by the inimitable Safecracker. Ooh. I wonder why he's called Safecracker. Because he's a he loves his cheese and crackers and I, I, he's very safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> he's a safe cracker. Oh I wish it were that fun, but no. <laughs> um uh, he now it translates into it, it's it's Der Schrenker. But they call, but it translates to the safe cracker. But since this is America and this is how we translate it to it, I did make a note of just like, I can't wait to meet Filey, the gangster who's really good with using files. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I can't wait to use the, to meet the one called Bullity. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they get into a meeting and they're just like, listen, 
a stock numbers are down. People are, are are not stealing as often as they used to because the police are raiding everything. You know, I'm just we've got to figure this out, guys. And it intercuts between that and the police trying to figure out what the hell's going on. What do we what, what do we do? And like one of the answers is more raids. Yeah, which I was. I, I don't know if showing this film is a good idea to a mass public to be like, hey guys, maybe we should try to learn from history. But like the, the watching the police insisting on a crackdown of more raids, like immediately called to mind the president. Yeah, or the the present, not the president, the present. Yeah, <laughs> um, it it calls to mind the president, and I don't know. How much of how much is too much to read into it? But I one illusion you can definitely make is just like, well, that's what the operation would be for the Nazis at a certain point. Yeah. But like putting the Nazi allegory aside and whatnot, you know, the idea of just like law enforcement cracking down on stuff. Yeah. You know, that's it's a daunting thought trying to catch this one killer that's terrorizing an entire city feasibly. I tried to look at it from this perspective of the 70s. When the Zodiac killer wrote that letter threatening to shoot up a school bus mm-hmm. which is a terrifying thought yeah that letter getting out to the press everybody is on all the children are, on, are all the children and the parents are on high alert yeah the, it, it holds San Francisco in a panic of in a grip of panic and now we take that as a daily operation of our lives so at the time this is a novelty of like let's raid every house yeah. search every citizen yeah find look high and low. And to see fascistic ideas forming out of desperation is something that I find a commentary on accident. Yeah. <laughs> because that, yes, the Nazi party, party was emerging, but it didn't seize power until two years later. So I do find that like an illusion on accident to the point where now we look at it as like a premonition. And it's not the same as Hitchcock making a movie like Lady Vanishes going like, guys, Nazis over there. Like this is somebody in the country itself looking at the immediate perspective. Mm-hmm. He's not looking forward or he's not looking forward. If anything, he's looking backward. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he's not unaware of the set of the mentality that is forming. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the criminals are basically they're going to be organizing watch groups. They're going to sh- they're going to patrol the city as a neighborhood watch. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like it's funny until you realize that that's sort of how gangsters operated in certain sections of certain cities. Yeah. They were the protection when the police weren't protecting people. Yeah. Or like that's they uh th- they would say like they were the they were the uh, I think it's in Goodfellas they were like they they were the policemen for wise guys they were policemen for co- for people who couldn't go to the cops oh interesting so like basically people who had committed a crime but needed protection but couldn't go to the cops for protection yeah that's kind of the same mentality that that permeates that idea yeah because they want to take they want to keep control of the city. Clearly, they have something established with the police as like an understanding, yeah. and that's being upended because of the pressure being put onto the police department by the commissioner, who's getting pressure on him by the secretary. I mean, think about it: if the homicide people don't even have time to change clothes, yeah, they're fucking desperate. Yeah, so they decide that they're going to form all these watches. But who are we going to get to have all these watch the these 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 watchmen watchmen uh shifts 
and they go the beggars and we get this society of beggars <laughs> which is like it's an underground cult i didn't realize i wanted to be real yeah <laughs> like like it looks orga- too organized for its own good. Um, one guy is lining up all the cigarette butts he found on the ground and looking for like the prime choice cut a cigar. Yeah, uh, they're playing cards with each other. Like it's it's kind of like the men's uh, the some of the uh, the the society that Lawrence Fishburne leads in the John Wick movies. Like yeah. they're the, the society of the hobos or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Meanwhile, the cops go like, this person must be somebody that's had dealings with law enforcement beforehand. So. We're gonna check every prison, um, every uh, every uh, hospital, medical facility, and asylum, and we're gonna cross reference with people who are now back out on the street. Basically, they're gonna look for people who have already been like released mm-hmm. um, under certain conditions. So you and I know about criminal pathology because it's been with us the moment we were born. There was a time when that wasn't a full consideration by police departments across the world. Uh, Jack Douglas's profiling of serial killers in the seventies is a big reason why we have the terminology we have today. Yeah. But the, the term serial killer isn't really fully a concept by this point. They just call him a killer. They're not even saying the word serial killer. Although there are allusions to it already being a serial killer, whether there's, imagery being used like handing a cereal to the mother of going like there's the latest adventure cereal and whatnot cereal killer cereal killer you that's films that's that's film theory that you can take or leave um i think it's nice to think about um but the other element of this is that you're watching the idea of criminal investigation being birthed here Mm -hmm. now i don't know when you as you've watched the film, have you found more appreciation for that reason? Or or was it something that you at first like maybe took for granted? I think I probably took that for granted. Um, I really like that element to it, but it's uh it's something I've never really considered in my previous watches of the film. I think it's I think it's something that if you were it, it, it's something that must be unique to the first time viewers of this movie in the era that it was released. Yeah. I do feel like Unless you are, and that kind of goes with every film we talk about on this show. Unless you are able to put yourself in the position of realizing this is the absolute first time, it's not going to hit the same way for you. Um, There is that element, though, of it also realizing that we don't have A&E cold case files. We don't have Making a Murderer. We don't have Tiger King. Um, Well, we technically never really needed Tiger King, but we got it anyway. What can you say? I liked it until people started reading, started watching it for the wrong reasons. And I was just like, I don't think you guys understood that animals were being abused. Yeah. Um, (laughs) These idiots don't matter to me. What matters is that animals were abused. Um, But to watch them basically cross-referencing something we'd immediately go to today. It's amazing that they had to figure it out. Yeah. Like, and, and, and you don't like laugh at that mockingly. Like you do like, it, it kind of lights a brain, a fire in your brain a little bit. Um, but they're, but the criminals meanwhile are going to recruit these beggars and we see a line of them. Yeah. Now, what is your experience with world war one, like post-world war one cinema in terms of like looking at people commenting on that war and that conflict? Um, would you say that you've like had some experience with it? It's br- limited i would say i mean uh 
like the yeah, I mean limited, very limited. I would say I'm, I'm not. I, I'm not going to pretend to be very. No, no, that's yeah. so, that's totally fine. I ask because unless you have seen imagery from the golden age of Hollywood or the golden age of early cinema, yeah, commenting on World War One. Your allusions to World War One aren't going to come immediately to you. Yeah, you're going to look toward World War Two. Yeah, yeah. The line of people enlisting who have clearly already either been through war or through poverty is a haunting shot. Yeah. Which, by the way, we get from the bottom of that beggar society. We are thrust up into a cut that's basically indicating like a a a, a pan up to another part of the building, and then we go through the glass. Yeah. You see that glass open up. That's a silent shot. You could tell not just because the silent the sound is gone, but also that's the only way they would have been able to pull that shot off. Yeah. But they actively open the window. Like the the window opens up. And that's a shot that makes me look at that and go like, so that's what Hitchcock wanted to do in Psycho. Yeah. But the budget wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Because they couldn't do that with the helicopter in the hotel room that way. Yeah. Um, and that's partially what Mel Brooks makes fun of in uh, High Anxiety when they go through the uh, the glass doors of the asylum. Yeah. So they have them sectioned for different sections of the city. They have everybody signing up. Yeah. They're even testing out the organ grinding to make sure it sounds just right when you grind that organ. Yeah. It's like it's kind of cool to watch the procedural to the point of making sure the organ grinder's music is yeah. just right. Yeah. <laughs> you ever <laughs> Because like they they do that cut in there and just it makes a loud sound and it like upsets one of the beggars. He's like, oh, hey, yeah. shut up, I'm trying to do things with my life like drink. And <laughs> and then he grinds it and then we cut. Like there's a lot of good editing in this film. Oh, like, yeah. I I don't know how I don't know how it looks compared to a modern crime drama, I'd need to watch them side by side. It feels about as efficient as the editing. The only times you notice it are when they're trying to overlap dialogue into the cross cut of a scene. So like that scene we mentioned before where you have the criminals and the cops both conferring, they have overlapping dialogue. Occasionally the dialogue, there's too much space in between the cut. So there's like a beat, cut, another beat, the line. Yeah. So it's it's a little off, but the idea is there. Yeah. The idea is forming and now we can do that easily on our computer in 5 seconds. Yeah. Um and we start seeing the vigilant patrol. Meanwhile, the cops are looking through the lists of all of the criminals that have been released from an asylum and they're going to start one by one with the list that they have obtained and there's this lovely shot of Peter Laurie walking out as the inspector walks in. Yeah. So I love that it's like an indicator of like, this is the crosscut we're going to see. And the crosscut we see is Peter Laurie. First, he's just eating fruit at a fruit stand while other people are buying fruit and occasionally handing fruit to other people going like, yeah, yeah I know what you, I know what you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you, Jerry, you get a pair every day. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we get that crosscut with them searching the apartment of one Hans Breckhardt. Yeah. We already know it's Hans Breckhardt, so let's just say the killer's name is Hans Breckhardt. There we go. Um, there we go. I have a name, and it's but it's not Laszlo, and it's not Peter. Oh. It's Hans Breckhardt. Oh, well, there you go. I don't know who I am! <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we get the... Um, uh, we get this shot of him moseying about and then i think the one of the most iconic images in this movie hands down is 
him looking through the reflection of a silverware emporium or a silverware store of some kind, and there's silverware arranged in a uh, diamond kind of shape. Yeah. And in the reflection, he sees another little girl. Yeah. And this is where we get, start getting into the idea of the criminal pathology in there. Now, a question that will come up by the end of this is that how do you see the Peter Lorre character and his reasoning for it? And what does that do for an audience today? Because I feel like yeah. we've gone in cycles with this. <laughs> yeah. Like the sympathy for the monster. Kind of yeah. Thing. I think uh, it's always going to be one of those tricky subject matters. Yeah, um, no, yeah, no. We, we could tread lightly. Take yeah, your time. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I mean, I've always been uh, someone who thinks it's very important to hu- to humani- humanize monsters mm-hmm. uh, and to show that when humanity is at its worst and they become these monsters, whether that be like a, an example that I'll bring up from the top of my head, there is a uh, documentary called Swastika uh, that is uh, a lot of archive footage of Hitler. And uh, kind of like his daily home life. And it was the first time like the general public had seen that kind of footage. Doesn't kind of sound like, as cool as anti-Hitler. <laughs> yeah, not as cool. But uh, it gets a lot of flack for kind of showing like, oh, you know, like we don't want to see Hitler being like, a, we don't want to see Hitler laughing and having a good time or whatever. But I think it's important to acknowledge that they, these monsters were people. And that there is a connection that we could become that. And I think it's important to show what leads to humanity becoming that? I think another way to look at it too, from the documentary that you pointed out, mm-hmm. you know, Ernst Lubitsch had the had the argument for to be or not to be of dislike in order to, in order to fully cripple the Nazis with a comedic two by four, you have to portray them as human, yeah. and thus as humans they are bumbling and stupid, yeah, because humanity is not just sympathy; it's also observing the objective traits of failure and fault yeah and now when we're talking about you know like when we're talking about humanity at large you know you know it's easy for us to especially for me on this show to each week you know you know bash the political climate of the last four years on one particular group but the bottom line is is that there are a lot of people that in those groups that are people who are who have become things like that rather than were that yeah like by birth and inherited a lot of it is learned behavior yeah now and i'm not going to hear i'm not going to get into nature versus nurture here what i will get into is the idea that this film is one of the first to humanize the monster in the most extreme way possible oh yeah like let's be very clear it's the most extreme version of this oh yeah i mean it's like you, you don't get much darker than i'd argue that if this film hadn't set the standard you wouldn't have a movie like little children yeah. uh, the todd, todd haynes movie i believe it's the, the director sounds right um, yeah. where jackie earl haley um uh uh play, plays a plays a child molester who's been who's been released and you see his whole story to the yeah. point where he castrates himself yeah um and I don't think you get that kind of story with that kind of nuance without this. And this isn't advocating for Peter Laurie's side here by any stretch. He's no, a child. Yeah. He's a filthy no, child yeah, killer. Yeah. yeah. He's a filthy child killer. <clears throat> and yet watching Long play into this is very fascinating because something I didn't know about Long was he w- he had right wing leaning beliefs. Yeah. Now he wasn't over to the edge yeah. of of what Germany would become. 
but he you know he had he had a different he had a very specific viewpoint on that stuff but oddly enough this movie is anti-death penalty which is something that'll play into a factor here in just a second yeah so i find it interesting that a guy at that point in germany at that time with that kind of leaning playing into the humanity of the worst of the worst yeah and I think that's something that only happens when you have that kind of religious upbringing that he had because you are taught forgiveness within that realm. Yeah. And I do feel that that's an important factor into how Laurie portrays it because he goes to some some of a version of Catholic guilt in this as a yeah. result. Yeah. Um, or it's overall guilt, period, because he tries to stop himself first. Yeah. Um, then he just then he starts whistling in the Hall of Mountain King again. And he goes trailing that girl. Yeah. But stops at a bookstore, and the mother meets that girl at the bookstore, so he loses track of her. And which, by the way, that bookstore has a bouncing arrow that goes up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, books! <laughs> We've got plenty of books! <laughs> The latest technology, <laughs> books. <laughs> hey, look. Do you need a? Do you need more convincing? Here's a hypnosis wheel. Buy books. <laughs> this arrow leads to the books. You've all been looking for it. And this wheel convinces you to buy the books. <laughs> oh, Franz, that is a perfect scheme. We <laughs> we would be the finest booksellers in Germany with our arrow and our wheel. <laughs> buy them now. Book burning's gonna go up real popular soon. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Henry, that was a dark joke, and I, yeah. Fritz Lang, approve of it. <laughs> Can't speak for the host, but I, Fritz Lang, agree with it. Yeah. Yes, I agree. The documentary should be shown in all of its forms. There you go. <laughs> uh, this is Ernst Lubitsch. I also agree. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very similar. <laughs> <laughs> we may be the same person. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we see him trying to, like, shake it off again, and he goes to a bar, and he, uh, he first orders coffee, and then he goes, no, wait, cognac. So we see like this extremes happening like all in the span of like 30 seconds and he's whistling. I wondered if in the hall of the mountain King and when he's whistling it, is that him trying to calm and self soothe himself or something like that? Cause that's like, yeah, a, maybe. it's an interesting thought to think of because when he's like holding his hands to his head and like frustration and he's whistling it, it's almost just like, is he trying to talk himself out of this? Yeah. I don't know. But regardless, he then goes on the prowl for somebody else. Yeah. And meanwhile, as he's been whistling and he walks uh, by with another girl, he uh, we we he catches the attention of that blind man again yeah. with his creepy balloons, um, which those creepy balloons are still there. They're not yeah. going away. Yeah. Um, and he goes, that voice. I know that voice in that song. I know that song. Um, and so he uh, he he calls over um, Heinrich mm-hmm. uh, and he t- tells Heinrich, you know, like that's. Follow that man. That's the man who was with Elsie Beckman the day I gave Elsie Beckman a balloon. And he 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 he, he whistled that song. So Heinrich goes after Breckhart, who Breckhart is taking her and like buying her candy and all this creepy stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's one shot where he takes out a switchblade and Heinrich goes like, oh no. And then he just shows a shot of him peeling an orange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just gotta peel my orange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, he realizes like he can't really attract, he can't, he can't follow him without attracting suspicion. So he comes up with a plan. Heinrich 
puts a uh, uh, chalks up the letter M on his hand, and then he walks by him and he pretends to slip on one of his orange peels and goes like, "Hey, what are you doing throwing oranges like there? You gonna get cra- you what you crazy? What, what kind of guy are you? What the hell?" And um, that and that in that process, he's hit him on the shoulder with his hand, and so we get the iconic image of the M on the jacket. Yeah, um, which I think. Anybody who's never seen this movie knows that image. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know that image right off the bat. So that's how they're able to start trailing him for a little bit. Meanwhile, the police don't really turn up anything at Breckard's place. They make note of the fact that he um, uh, that he borrows the landlady's newspaper, uh, that he, you know, like doesn't really have any writing utensils around the house. Yeah. Um, and uh, the he, he notes that he smokes Ariston cigarettes, and then Lerman goes, "Hold, hold, hold on, Ariston, Ariston." And Long does this thing like it's kind of funny when you watch him delay it like that from a modern context. But I put myself in the other position. I was just like, he's pushing in and watching Lerman figure it out. Yeah, and then he 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 points out to bring up uh, the the Marga Pearl case which was another case of this killer. Uh, and it's revealed that three cigarette butts, Ariston cigarettes were found mm-hmm. at the crime scene. So this must be the person, but they can't connect it because he didn't really have a writing desk. He didn't have that kind of old table that would be pressing up against the wood for the, um, when writing that letter. But then they realize the windowsill. Now we're going to Tarantino in it. I'm going to show you back to the other part of the movie where we saw him writing the letter. Yeah. Yeah. And then we see a intertitle that says the letter, and then yeah. we hear Al Davis's "Let's Stick Together," um, <laughs> or Al Green's "Let's Stick, Stick Together." Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, they go to the windowsill and they see the red shavings of the pencil that he would have wrote the note with. Um, and so they know that Hans Breckar must be the killer. So they wait for him. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Laurie's on the run, and he uh, flees into an office building and starts hiding in the attic. Um, and then we start getting, we get another overlapping dialogue shot, which this one, I think astounds me more than the crowd scene because <laughs> this is the part where I said the Criterion Blu-ray is trying to catch up with the uh, uh, the dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> so you hear things going like, oh, I'll never go through that with my stomach again, or my boss talked to me today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, just like, random pieces of dialogue. Yeah. It was like, if, it's like if I were to tell you like, hey, Henry. I can't understand German. Can you yeah, like, <laughs> try to suss out every phrase going on here? Um, uh, uh, <laughs> hunky dory. Yeah, like, <laughs> wow, that's cool, Janice. <laughs> 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 and the um, uh, so he hides in the uh, attic where they like store like it's like storage and whatnot, and he gets locked in at the process. Um. The criminals uh, go back to Safecracker and they tell Safecracker, like, he got away, but he's inside this building. And they're like, we should call the cops and let him know that he's there. And Safecracker just goes like, hold the fuck up. No. We are going to catch him. Yeah. And then that's when the, that's when Elliot Gould comes out of a closet and goes, you're going to need 11 guys. And yeah. <laughs> we get a heist movie. Yeah. This movie is a gangster movie. It's a heist movie. It's a crime thriller. It's everything. That's oh, the best. Now, the the break-in is based off of an actual break-in at a bank. Mm-hmm. Um, but the goal was money and not a person. Yeah. Um, but they based it tech, tech, uh, on the technical scheme of it all on this. Oh, interesting. And they apprehend the guard. 
They get the guard in there. There's this shot of the crowd of criminals that are going to excavate the building, looking inside the the guard, like the guard office and whatnot. And Safecracker is clearly uh, torturing him for information. And when he says, I won't talk, you see the crowd gather in around the door so that you can't see what's going on. Yeah. But they can. Yeah. And you hear a loud excruciating, ah! like, and so you just know that something's happened. Like, and, you know, your imagination can fill in the gaps. I just imagine he kicked him in the nuts and said, yeah. where are the other guards? Yeah. And then and that's when they go like, there are two other guards around here. And they start this Im- immense operation they they bore through the walls they drill through the floors this is this is so they need Danny Ocean for this they're too disorganized yeah, of course they you need you need somebody like George Clooney to organize yeah if you're trying to be a vi- you know what you need George Clooney as Batman there you go cuz he knows he knows how to pull off a heist and he's Batman yeah <laughs> you need to have him help you plan out this heist because yeah. he'll know all the angles being like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's not what George Clooney would sound like as Batman, but it's fine. You know, he would know like, well, this is, this is what a criminal would normally do. So you've got to do this instead. So you can <laughs> not arouse suspicion. Yeah. The only reason I'm helping you is because I'm trying to find a child killer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they look through and they also have to, I didn't realize there were triple arms this far back. Yeah. And this elaborate too. Yeah. The triple arms are set both to time um, so that like if there's any like entry into any other place, something's gonna go off at a certain by after a certain time. Yeah. So the guy's gotta go and shut off all the alarms. Yeah. And in the midst of shutting off all these alarms, he starts hearing digging in the walls. And what's happening is Hans Breckhardt is actually trying to peel his way through the doors and whatnot and trying to break locks. At one point, he's actually carving out a, a nail and trying to pull a nail out. And then at one point he's trying to dig around it with the butt of it because his knife breaks. Um, the guy who notices it goes down and goes like, oh, I found him. He's in the attic. He's in the attic. He's behind the door. And we get this amazing shot of Breckart and the criminals and the tension of a door opening mm-hmm. and being unlocked. Yeah. So we're holding on that tension. This movie suspect. I, I would love to know how you feel about this movie's perception of time because it deals by seconds. Yeah. But it's also not afraid to slow down as much as it, it speeds up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I never had strong opinions on the time frame. I guess I would say, um, I think it uses. <laughs> that's what I can probably describe is that it does what it needs to do, and it doesn't really let time stand in its way. And so, with a story as complex and interwoven as this is, I think. Well, I think a modern equivalent could also uh, like we were bringing up Ocean's Eleven in a, yeah. in a joking way. But those films ended up not only using similar tactics to expedite or slow down time, depending on their nature, but also to revise time. Um, I, and Jackie Brown, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. One of those reasons is I love the way they break down the heist from the different perspectives. Yeah. So he's fucking with time in that movie the yeah. same way that Long fucks with time in this movie in several different points. But yeah. time is always of the essence, regardless. It's a constant factor. It's a race against the clock. Yeah. But the clock is uncertain in certain regards. Um, but they but Laurie turns off the lights and runs down the way back to where he was hiding initially. There's that shot of the door opening and it's all black and it's it's like a it's a beautifully stark shot. And they turn on the lights and they go through and they find Breckhart 
and they uh, they apprehend him and they put him in a body bag and they they chuck him out and they're getting ready to take him to we don't know where Henry we yeah. don't know where they're going to take him we don't take him we don't we don't know where we're going to take him but everybody gets out except for one person Franz who was ha- who had to go down on a rope to get down into one of the offices yeah all the other ones are breaking down the door this one they had to bore through the wall or the floor I don't understand that <laughs> listen. Gotta be, gotta be. You, 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 you. Do you have to be that detailed? Like, do you have to go through every angle? Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Zach, you idiot. Don't you understand? I'm just as meticulous as that British fuck you love so yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> you want detail? We got detail. <laughs> yeah, Zach, you fucking idiot. <laughs> I don't like being yelled at by myself as two famous directors. There you go. <laughs> I guess I hate myself that much, Henry. <laughs> yeah, welcome to club. So. Oh, oh, you're, oh, you're part of the self-loathing club, too? Self-loathing all day, every day. Oh, God, sure, my, yeah, I was always kind of uh, self-conscious about my weight. There we go. Me, too, I was always self-conscious about my eyewear. Yeah, we, we can all form a club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Franz is left behind, and there's, like, there's a lot of circle shots in this film, like somebody always being left out of the circle. In this case, somebody's left in the circle yeah. <laughs> and being pulled up. Up and he, I love this. Is I think this line has gone on to inspire many lines of such nature down the line. Put up your hands. How can I when I have him on the rope? <laughs> like, because he's being because he's pulling himself up. Yeah. Um, Franz is put in and he's questioned by the police, and he's getting nowhere. He he said he maintains like this time I'm absolutely innocent. You can believe me. I know I've committed some crimes in the past, but this time. Total 100% Innos. Um, and this, uh, the cop's getting nowhere with him. He goes back to Loman, and Loman, we get this, <laughs> this low angle shot of Loman uh, and his gut. And you see, like, from, the, from that low angle, like, we always talk about, like, Citizen Kane innovates the low angle shot. Yeah. And, like, and I love Citizen Kane. These shots were done way before, and Wells fully admits that he took a lot of things he saw in other films and put them into his films. Yeah. Like Quentin Tarantino does. Yeah. Um, and in this case, it's this one, you kind of like see the burden and the exhaustion yeah. on Loman. Like he's, he would need any distraction in the world to kind of break him away from this. Yeah. And it comes in the form of Franz. Cause at this point, nothing's connected. So the other cop comes into him and says like, you know what I'm going to do? Um, I need you to follow along with me on this, but if you can convince him that this is worse than he thinks it is, maybe he'll crack. Mm-hmm. And they use the guard who did live and was the one who alerted the police. And when you see the alarm system, it's actually kind of cool because it runs by Morse. It gives yeah. them the number that then they look up in a file system and then they see the diagram of the building yeah. and the address of the building. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Like if you were to make a 1930s heist movie like that. Yeah. I'd want that technology in there. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Loman goes in and basically says like, hey, so that guard is dead. Yeah. You and your buddies killed him. You're an accessory to murder. Worse, you could even be a murderer. Meanwhile, they cut to a shot of the guard eating steak. And yeah. <laughs> it's a nice it's it's a nice little like cheeky thing for the audience, yeah. which they need some alleviation because this has been a heavy fucking movie so yeah. far. Um, And so they he breaks 
Franz down to the point where he tells them, like, we're going after the murderer of Elsie Beckman. And they're like, we got him. And that then Lorman goes, oh, what? But he does it in a way of just like shock. And he goes, excuse me for a second. And then he like goes into the restroom and retouches up his hair and slicks it back. And he's trying to like, he's trying to look more professional. Yeah. And just not, he's trying to like wash away that bewilderment because he, in a million years, he wasn't expecting that the criminals would do his job for him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, look, I'm used to you doing the job that then gives me a job. Yeah. But to do my job? What? Yeah. I don't know about that, but I'm going to go with this. So he basically goes like, sit down, Franz, my boy, my best friend in the world. (laughs) Um, And then we get the kangaroo court. Um, which is being held at the old distillery, as Franz reveals. Yeah. And we see Peter Laurie being brought to the uh, before this 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 vigilante court. Um, now, <clears throat> I would like your honest opinion, as much as you're comfortable with it. We're dealing with vigilante justice here, which is obviously a very touchy subject within the last yeah. uh, week month years yeah um and i was curious how this plays for you given the world we've lived in the last five years um i mean i think uh, like i said visually justice is very much a hot button issue at the moment um i am always i've historically uh been very anti-vigilante justice Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I'm always learning, and I think I like I think with this film specifically, uh, that's how it has to go. Yeah, like that's that's where it's going. That's that, the point. That, that's so, where that's where it's going. Yeah. What's interesting though is is that like because this is a storytelling device that we love in movies. We yeah. love this. Yeah. We love Batman movies. That's yeah. vigilante justice. He just doesn't have a court. Yeah. Oh, actually, the Scarecrow has a court in um Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Which I don't remember. I've barely watched that. About that yeah. yeah, I've I I I've barely gone back to that movie for my own reasons. Yeah, yeah. but I remember it being ba- basically very much a kangaroo court yeah. scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now this, the way this is played out is interesting to me because it's not the same bloodthirsty that we are used to. We're used to dealing with it like we're brought into the sympathy of the person who becomes the vigilante in a lot of these movies. Yeah. Rarely are we given the opposite end of that spectrum today. Yeah. This film has a lot of balls on it to my mind, because we've just established that we've been talking about a movie about a a child killer. Yeah. So the kangaroo court proceeds out with not just all the criminals, but also the mothers of the children, Mm. members of the community, with Safecracker, Judge Safecracker presiding. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> yeah. Bam! Um, and he comes in, and he's got his own bailiff that's got some some wisecracks in between cases and stuff. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you, know? um, you need that if you want to go on CTV. Of course. <laughs> um, now, uh, they they basically tell him that we are, we are here to put you on trial, and <laughs> Lori... <laughs> Lori is going like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I don't, I've done nothing wrong. <laughs> I've done absolutely nothing wrong. And then the blind man comes like, oh, but you do. 
And you know how I'm going to prove it to you? By showing you my creepy fucking balloon that you bought for Elsie oh. Beckman. Look at the creepy balloon. Look at it. Oh, yeah. Look at the creepy balloon. Oh. And and there's a... He, he's like... He tries to escape again. And there's this shot of like... The cries and agony out of Lori are staggering to the sound mix. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a pitch. Like, have you ever... Um, I don't know when the last time you've ever seen Casablanca is. Not recently. The first time I ever heard Lori yell is when he's being apprehended by the Nazis after shooting one of the guards that was going to take him away because he killed the Jew, two German couriers carrying the letters of transit. Um, see the Casablanca episode for more details. But after he... He's trying to get away and he's going to Rick and he goes, Rick, Rick. That scene, that sound is modulated. Yeah. <coughs> Here, it's piercing. You hear him go like, let me out, let me out. And you see him basically flung to the floor. And Safecracker explains how the how this is going to go. And he he points out the fact like you have no right to do this. And Safecracker goes like you spoke of rights. Now we will be your right. And he shows the long shows this line of the criminals all within the 15 years of sentences combined or something. Like he alludes to the idea that these guys have been through the criminal justice system to the point where they know the law just as well as a lawyer does or a policeman does. Yeah. Which I think is a factor that we don't always take into account when we talk about, uh, courtroom dramas today or courtroom s- procedures in real life and yeah. criminal criminal justice system in this country today. Yeah. There's a lot of people who've been behind bars so much that they know the legal system to where it's applied to them directly Yeah, pretty flawlessly. Um, and in fact, a lot of great courtroom dramas do have that mentality of like the criminal being not only aware of his rights, but also aware of like the legal jurisdiction and exactly what's going on and what these codes mean. And yeah. You know, it's interesting to think about that the the mentality this far back to go on is just like Lang's not demonizing criminals here. Yeah, he is pointing to a disparity in yeah. the, in the society that in which he lives. Yeah, and where it is to a boiling point. Yeah, to where they be brought to this moment here. Yeah, because the criminals are obviously pissed. Yeah, but now they're also becoming moral arbiters. Yeah, which. It's pointed out by the guy who ends up becoming his defense counsel that the safecracker has been on several counts of manslaughter charges and, and safecracker goes, that's irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> like, Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Ixnay. I'm like, rhymes K. <laughs> I don't know how to do pig Latin. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he then starts going through his defense. Yeah. And I wanted to read out the way the scene goes according to the dialogue. Yeah. If you'll indulge me and I'll play a clip for this. um, But uh, Breckhardt goes, I can't help what I do. I can't help it. I can't. And uh, a criminal goes, the old story. We never can help it in court. And Breckhardt goes, what do you know about it? Who are you anyway? Who are you? Criminals? Are you proud of yourselves? Proud of breaking saves and cheat or cheating at cards? Things you could do just as well, keeping your fingers off. You wouldn't need all of that if you had learned a proper trade or if you'd worked. If you weren't a bunch of lazy bastards. By the way, this movie does have a lot of cursing (laughs) in German, though, so that's okay. Um, But I can't help myself. I have no control over this, this evil thing inside me. 
the fire, the voices, the torment. <laughs> um, and uh, Safecracker goes, do you mean to say that you have to murder? And Breckard goes, it's there all the time driving me out to wander the streets, following me silently. But I feel and in there. It's me pursuing myself. I want to escape, to escape from myself. But it's impossible. I can't escape. I have to obey it. I have to run, run, endless streets. I want to escape, to get away. And I'm pursued by ghosts, ghosts of mothers and of those children. They never leave me. They are always there. Always, always, always. Except when I am doing it. When I... Then I cannot remember anything. And afterwards I see these posters and read what I've done and read read, who knows what it's... uh, Read, did I do that? But I can't remember anything about it. But who would believe me? Who knows what it's like to be me? I'm forced to act how I must, must, don't want to, must, don't want to, must. And then a voice screams. I can't bear to hear it. I can't go on. I can't. Rick, do something around. Help me, Rick. No. That, that just went into Castle Blanca for a of second. Of course. Yeah. But <coughs> that whole line of dialogue there that we just saw. Yeah. Or heard with my dumb impression. It's not It's not uh, subtle, Peter Lorre. Uh, we are dealt the exact sympathy that we were just discussing earlier. Can you imagine what it's like to hear that in 1931? Yeah. Because it's hard to hear that today. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That he got away with that. It's amazing that the censors didn't say, let's forget the Nazi party for a second here, because they obviously they banned this movie in 1934. The censors of the era allowing this to get away. Yeah. I can't imagine anybody in America deeming this approved. Even in a pre-code era, I feel like you'd be running into a very tricky territory. Yeah. Like, because an example I'll give for pre-code cinema of the same era is Night Nurse. Yeah. uh, With Clark Gable as Nick, the chauffeur. Yeah. um, Who is slowly uh, uh, starving two children in order to gain an inheritance. And... uh, they don't give him any sympathy whatsoever. This film is actively deciding we're going to give the killer sympathy. And I do think that that is an interesting thing to point into because we get to the discussion of we should kill him here or do we turn him over to the police? Considering that Long has stated that this is not a pro-death penalty movie, I wonder where that leaves this film to a certain regard, I think it's left in intentional ambiguity. Yeah. I think you are, which let's talk about it for a second. When we're left with these tough choices in films, when we're left with these in a modern realm, yeah. Um, you know, whether, whether it's the most difficult film in the world, or if it's something as simple as how no country for old men or the master ends. Yeah. You know, when we're left in that space, you know, like the question that I have is, is a it's a vague one, but hopefully it can be expounded upon based on your own personal judgment. Do you believe that that deter that is a an intentional test to test your own character? Um, I know it's tough. <laughs> it's not easy. 
I mean, in cases where, with ambiguous endings, uh, where the what the film is trying to say isn't as clear, I mm-hmm. guess, or it's like what the point exactly is, or at least one angle on the movie. Yeah, too. or like what what stance is like? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, the film taking, I think. I think that's done because it is a thing where the writer directs the production. They might have their own idea, but they also know that what they're talking about is beyond one interpretation and beyond one instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to kind of leave it up to the audience to decide for themselves where is the line, where are you going to draw the line? Right. Because And the reason I bring this up, because it seems like an obvious question and one that we've probably answered before on why ambiguity works. Yeah. But I bring it up to sometimes discussions when, as far back as when we were early on in the Real Nerds podcast, we had, um, there were there were others on who pointed to just like filmmakers who say like, hey, that's the movie and if you don't enjoy it, it's your own fault. And, yeah. you know, I understand Ryan's position of going like, well, that's not cool. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but ambig- ambiguous endings don't necessarily fall into that category, but they can perceive as such. And then people who don't, who want a definitive ending proclaim the movie dumb because it's not definitive. Yeah. But that definitive nature, if you had had a definitive ending for this movie in that form, it would be a less impactful movie. Yeah. Because you have to have that argument and you do have to have part of the code or part of any censorship would dictate a happier ending. Yeah. This is the happiest it gets in Germany. Yeah. France, when they reshot this movie, changes the ending. Yeah. Uh, because right after his plea, we get the defense from the defenseman mm-hmm. who advocates for turning him over to the police. But the bloodlust of this mob is insatiable. Yeah. They've had it. They've been paranoid. They've been tormented. They've been thrown into mass hysteria. They have had it. And we get the defense counsel like, Saying basically, I'm saying this man is sick, and you send a sick man to the doctor and not to an executioner. The advocation of the insanity plea. Safecracker immediately replies back with just like, so what? So they can be deemed cured in a few years and then sent back out into the world and then more murders happen? And at that point, I wonder, like, is Safecracker taking this too, too more seriously than he intended? Or is this a front for the fact that he is worried about his business going under again because of something like this. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it's kind of both. Yeah. I think through the process of going on this vigilante manhunt first for the sake of his financial circumstance, Safecracker has become a moral arbiter. Yeah. And it's very very interesting because that moral arbitration feeds into gangster culture more often than not. Yeah. There are lines that at least in gangster movies, I'm not going to speak on the actual mafia. But there are but there are lines that you connect both reality and in film to certain lines that won't be crossed. And one of them in The Godfather, especially like the big crux of The Godfather was we won't sell drugs. We won't sell drugs to kids like that. Yeah. Booze and prostitution is one thing, but drugs are a whole other thing. Yeah. And it's one of those things that Vito refuses to do. And then that's why they're after him. Yeah. So the idea of the gangster having morals yeah, is quite an interesting humanizing thing that doesn't really happen the same way in American gangster films. Yeah. 
And this isn't technically a gangster movie, but gangsters are shoved into this movie heavily. Yeah. And so I do like want to consider it from that perspective of just like, is Germany able to be a little bit more honest yeah. with its criminality and how it operates than America? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that pertains to because they all had censors. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know, like, I don't know if history dictates like there's just like a European, a little more liberal European vibe about it. Yeah. Which is wonderful because it gives us further expressive art. Yeah. But it does beg to mind the question of just like, at what point between this and then maybe Mean Streets? Do you start getting moral arbitration within the gangster? Yeah. Because you definitely get the insanity of the gangster in the form of white heat. Yeah. And to have it in the middle of this movie is interesting because it's almost like Long is taking several different genre tropes. Yeah. Police, criminal, murderer. Yeah. Creepy balloon. And putting them all into one boiling pot and saying, now fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And- by the time we get to the end, the resolution is that the police do succeed because of Franz's tip. Yeah. But the mob immediately says, like, enough of this shit, we're killing him. Yeah. And you get this shot of the mob going towards him and then backing away. Yeah. Because the police have arrived. Yeah. In the French version, they showed shots of the police coming in. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm glad Long didn't do that because yeah. it's way more chilling yeah. to watch them slowly backing away. Yeah. It's almost like looking at a human going from anger to fear super quick. Yeah. The way we can react as humans. And then we just hear the lines, in the name of the law, and then it cuts to a tribunal sentencing Breckman, and it cuts back to the mothers who are the real unfortunate souls in this story. Yeah. Um, and we get the final line of the movie which leads into one has to keep close watch of the children all of you yeah and the original script had the line and you uh and i think like but something that's interesting is that the movie is calling a direct call to arms to the audience yeah in a way that isn't shoehorned yeah it's earned it's earned its moralistic lesson yeah in a way that most golden age hollywood movies don't because they're tacked on there yeah in order to achieve what they're achieving now we talked about definitive endings in here yeah technically this is a definitive ending yeah Breckman goes to jail and a story yeah but how do you see it by the end of the movie yeah. How do you how like and that's what I want to know from you like how do you see it by the end like based on everything we've experienced from mass hysteria to the the pathology of serial killers where what is Lang getting at it um, in your mind or at least I guess from the experience of how you've watched it before I guess I've always kind of viewed this film as a analysis of humanity and kind of the forms and the mixture how morality and humanity mix mm -hmm. uh the lines that we choose for ourselves uh and the morality that we put our own shoes in uh kind of determining i don't know i don't know how to phrase it really but it's uh would you would you, i mean like uh if i could try to help oh, with it, is, yeah. i think too. i i 
I feel what you're saying about like the the limits of morality, like pushing yeah. like how the question always comes up is the tagline for an action movie: "How far would you go to save yeah. the one you loved?" Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of treating it like an action movie, yeah, it's treating it like a serious ethical question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How far do you go? Yeah, we. We can look at this film today with the hindsight of sensationalist trials, yeah, true crime murder, living in the fear that extends off of both. Yeah. I I feel like we are in an epicenter in both film and culturally that is peaking into this same territory. So it's come around again yeah. in a bigger way. But I but I ironically, it's never gone away. Yeah. We're just feeling an intensity because we're here in the moment. Yeah. We'd love to I'd love to talk to somebody from the eighties and the seventies and the sixties and see yeah. how they felt about the same oh, yeah. thing by showing them this movie and comparing the two. Yeah. It's a constant cycle. And in film in particular, the the cycle goes around in interesting directions towards who you sympathize with in the story. Yeah. I think in the 80s we uh, this uh, I think in the 80s and some of the 90s we see a lot of uh vilification. Yeah. But in the 70s and a lot in the mid to and, and a lot in the 2000s and up into the mid 2000s uh, or in the mid 2010s we see a lot of profiling of the killer and sympathy for the monster yeah now in the 70s though it's interesting because you have a duality you have two different factions going at it you have the portrayal of sympathy for a person who commits an egregious act like i'd put travis bickle in this category yeah travis bickle is not an innocent man yeah he did shoot up a lot of people yeah did they deserve to die yeah but you do have to look at it from the objective act yeah and the other side of that, the more extreme version of that is Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Dirty Harry takes vigilante justice to its most extreme by putting the criminal inside the cop. Yeah. You know, like, I love those movies. I do. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. They're also about fascistic tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. my opinion has had to evolve about Dirty Harry. Yeah. And I do make a connection to M because you take a police drama and intertwine it with this seedy true life murder mystery. Case in point, the Scorpio killer is based off the Zodiac killer. Yeah. Breckhardt is based off of the several different serial killers coming out of Germany at this point. Yeah. You're seeing the same story repeat itself. But then when you get the sympathy for the monster stuff, which really starts stemming off of the Universal Monster movies and reading into the ones that aren't Dracula or Invisible Man related. Yeah. And you start seeing that sympathy for the monster. In the 2000s, we were seeing dimensions to these monsters. Yeah. Like, shoot, Rob Zombie made money on this thing. (laughs) Like, it's not... What The difference, though, is he took the 70s approach and made it a super extreme thing to where, like, (laughs) associating... Or identifying with the Firefly family comes with tricky territory, I'd argue. I love those movies, but arguably, if you know, like, if you identify with those killers, you'd almost want to have a one-on-one conversation with each person. Yeah. Um, not not to I'm not pigeonholing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I love those movies. Like yeah. Sid Haig is fucking hilarious in yeah. those movies. <laughs> but they also commit some heinous acts. Yeah. And you have to look at it from this weird duality. Yeah. 
that ultimately asks you to look at yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again leads to what you were talking about, looking inside. Yeah. That situation and seeing where your own lines are drawn. Now we're back to a point where the monster is the monster. Yeah. And like evidence as such by the Invisible Man reboot, which flat out turns re- reclaims the Invisible Man as a universal monster yeah. in the traditional sense. The universe, the Invisible Man, has always kind of been used in that regard. Yeah. Um, if we're talking about the criminal nature and whatnot, I don't like this movie, but the little things, the yeah. one that came out by John Lee Hancock. Yeah. You know, uh, spoiler alert for the little things. If you wanted to watch this movie. Jared Leto. Remember it. Jer- Jared Leto. <laughs> so. Shots fired at John Lee Hancock. What do you have against him? Oh, <laughs> uh, not against him. It's just a movie that I forget exists sometimes. That's you, you, <laughs> okay. We can remember Saving Mr. Banks and the Blind Side. Yeah, sure. Well, we can forget. We can, we can remember Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Jared Leto's character is not the killer, as it turns out. Yeah. So they went on this whole thing for nothing kind yeah. of thing. But the but he is never portrayed in a sympathetic light. Mm-hmm. He has never given the benefit of the doubt until the last minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I find it interesting that whether it's that or other crime dramas that are taking rightfully so they're taking the victim's perspective, which is an argument that Dirty Harry makes, but then fumbles over a yeah. bunch. Um coming from the victim's side of things, it seems like we flip flop every so often. Yeah. As a society on where the sympathy is going to lie. One thing is for certain, though, this kind of a heavy message movie wasn't as big a hit as uh, one might think. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of this as like the cream of the crop film school movie. Like this yeah. is a film school movie. Yeah, 100%. You watch this in film school. Yeah. Um, except for Henry, who watched it in the museum at age 11. <laughs> <laughs> Was that like film school? Might as well be. Okay. Um so uh, the re- the reviews for I have reviews here from the American side of things because this film did get released for two weeks in its German form before being reshot for English. Uh, this film falls into the same category as we have discussed for um, uh, Dracula. Mm-hmm. And it would actually be interesting to bring you back for the English language version of this 31 version, yeah. which is on the Criterion. Yeah. Um, and then eventually for the remake and give you an M trilogy. Yeah. Um, but uh, Variety reviewed it as a little too long without spilling the effect, even bettering it. Cutting could have do- could be done. There are a few repetitions and a few slow scenes, which I don't think this movie is really slow. I, I don't think it's slow. No, no this, the uh, slowest moments for me come when Franz is being questioned in the... Um, uh, at the police station. Yeah. But it's not slow. It's essential. Like, yeah. but he's dragging it out intentionally. Yeah. Like, this feels like an action movie by comparison to other films of the era, but yeah. quite honestly. Yeah. Um, well, were, that, was that critic watching at the time? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't find the, the name of the reviewer on it, but yeah. like, if I go through in the variety archives that I've been able to get a hold of, I would like to read more onto this. But yeah. uh, Graham Greene, though, stated that looking through the eyepiece of a microscope which tangle which the tangled mind is exposed laid flat on the slide love and lust nobility and perversity hatred of itself and despair jumping out at you from the jelly um and it seems like it made an impression on people to a certain extent with its content but not i mean i i don't 
know how I don't I don't know what how we would react if we were living in 1931 and saw it. Would we see yeah. this as preachy rather than innovative? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, I always keep in mind with a film like M which has such lauding praise around it. It's a cult movie. Yeah. It is a cult movie because of how it was received at its time. Yeah. And the trend towards sound films at this time were towards musicals. Yeah. Were towards films that engaged more talking. Yeah. Long made an intentionally sparse dialogue driven movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's got to be a kind of a frustrating part on Nero yeah. Films' front. But, yeah. you know, now comes the part where the film uh, uh, gets received in the Germany uh, spectrum of things. Uh, so Goebbels praised this movie in his diary. Yeah. Uh, as a, a a wonderful movie that promotes the death penalty. Mm. Um, now I want to make sure I get this story right because it's it's one of Long's fables, but, yeah. <laughs> which is different than Aesop's fables. Yeah, <laughs> Long's fables deal with Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, according to Lang, Joseph Goebbels called Lang into his office to inform him regarding. Dr. Mabusa, oh. which would come afterward, uh, was being banned, but nevertheless was so impressed by Lang's b- abilities as a filmmaker, especially Metropolis, and based on his diaries, M must have played a part in this, yeah. that he offered the position of head of German film studio UFA at the time that they had seized power. Long said there was during that meeting that he had decided to leave for Paris, but the banks had closed by the time the meeting was over. Lang claimed that after selling his wife's jewelry, he fled to Paris that very evening, leaving most of his money and personal possessions behind. But the passport of the time showed that he had traveled to and from Germany a few times during 1933 to get everything out. Mm. So um, there's an inflation of the ego thing. But one of the things that Goebbels says in his entry is like, Franz or, or uh, Lang will be ours one day. Yeah. This is before they fully seize power. So. He's already taking notes of like who is going to be the most effective propagandist for us. Yeah. Who's going to be the person that gives Germany an identity? Yeah. What's funny is Germany Germany already had an identity under people like Long yeah. and Pabst and Murnau. And what Goebbels ended up doing was uh, essentially bastardizing and perverting that identity. Yeah. With the with footage from this film, there is a film called The Eternal Jew, a propaganda film, a very notorious propaganda film. The M criterion showing the multiple versions of this film shows the section in which this film has a clip of Peter Lorre doing his plea to the court. Mm-hmm. And it is expressly alluding to the idea that this is how Jewish people behave. Yeah. So Goebbels took this and used Peter Lorre and that brilliant performance as fodder for his bullshit. Well, that's not great. No, it's not. Of course not. Hey, I don't know if you know this, the Nazis were bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're pretty bad. Yeah. Anywho, um, regardless though, M is released to rather mixed reception, whatever. Um, 
ne- so Nebazal left Germany early. First, they went to Paris in the mid '30s, and then they went to Hollywood. By the time World War II fully broke out, when it, when we finally called it World War II, yeah, but we actually just called it the war with Japan or the 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 war of the Allies or the yeah. war of the Axis, yeah. or the war for the rings or nothing. No. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Nebazal got out <clears throat> and retained the rights to this film. And they proceeded to butcher it. Um, part of the reason was uh, at some point in the 50s, Nebazal uh, remade him, uh, 1951. A lot of that film's lack of success would be due to one of the people, key members of the crew being uh, tied to a communist association. But that's a story for another day, ladies and gentlemen. I will say that you can watch the remake on YouTube for free. It's an interesting noir to watch. Um it's not as effective as this movie we discussed today. Um, but the original version was run at 117 minutes. The current version we have is at 110 minutes. That was the, the longer version past the censors. So this film has a couple of elements to it. Pillar boxing is a good example to be going through. Aspect ratios. We have the silent, typical one by one three three standard. By the 30s, we have the 1-137 ratio, which is the Academy Standard. Yeah. In between silent film and sound film fully becoming an adopted piece, yeah. you have optical sound prints that cut into the frame. Yeah. So they reframed it for 1-119. So that's an intentional choice. It's uh, If anybody's seen The Lighthouse, that's yeah. 1-119. That's the ratio that they're doing it at. That's why it looks even narrower than yeah. most, um, uh, than than most um, four three ish films. Yeah, Academy ratio films. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there, there were cuts done that ended up affecting the aspect ratio because somebody would redo a print to try to get more accuracy out of the print oh, later on. That would end up having white lines at the top of the frame oh, because they miss. So you know, like you're, you're rephotographing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. You're you're misprinting it. So it's like it's not registering yeah. the same ratio. Yeah, yeah. But in the midst of making the remake, Nebazal re-released M. Yeah. First of all, he changed the opening credits and he put in the Hall of the Mountain King in a uh, um in a in the, the music itself yeah. in there at the beginning. Yeah. Which is actually kind of haunting to hear. I do yeah. like that addition technically, um, but um. Especially after being banned in 34, it's got to be interesting to see any version of M again. Yeah. But it had been cut down to 99 minutes, removing anything that made government look foolish. And it had Foley and empty spaces. Oh. So those scenes where we have the police encroaching on the underworld yeah. or those moments of silence, he added needless Foley. Yeah. That, frankly, when you watch the footage of it, looks and sounds terrible. Yeah. Um. So, but... I don't think he was doing that maliciously. Yeah. I think he did it because he was trying to make something marketable at the time for a sound film, an early sound film being re-released. You need to have, yeah, you need to have the same momentum that's coming out of a drive-in movie. Yeah. Yeah. But again, now in the early sixties, the script was reconstructed based off of the existing prints of the film, censorship notes and Lang's own recollections when he wasn't lying. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Rang's recollections. 
did you know we had a dragon in M? Oh. <laughs> it was a great dragon. Oh, yes. He, he was going to come down and burn everybody. And it would be a sign that in the end, it doesn't matter because we're all going to end up uh, slaves to the dragon people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The M stands for dragon. <laughs> that's that's why I, I could have made Game of Thrones so much better. I could have ended it the way everybody wanted it to be ended. Yeah. I don't know an ounce of that show, but I'm sure I could have ended it better than the way people felt that it ended and how it was terrible yeah. <laughs> yeah i fritz lang for game of thrones the Ooh. reboot <laughs> um now the munich film museum created a reference print based on several prints so it's not a great print but it's there like it's a reference based off of those that completed script yeah which also revealed the key missing scenes of dialogue and yeah. such now in 86 there was an intermediary print shown on television then in 1995 they did the aspect ratio fuck up yeah. rest- restoration. Yeah. But that ended up being the guiding source for the 97 criterion restoration yeah. that we know and love today. Yeah. The negative itself was found, but it was not pristine. It was missing one reel and deteriorating. Um, and they had to fix it with additional reels from other sources to create the film we have today in our possession. Yeah. <clears throat> Since the release of this film... The legacy of it has become emaciated in popular culture. Yeah. We talked a lot about several examples of it. Um, you know, uh, I didn't realize that this had been adapted for radio in yeah. 2003. Yeah. And it, it's incumbent on me to look for better new time radio. But um, Peter Strauhan and uh, BBC Radio 3 uh, in 2003, adapted M for Radio and then later rebroadcasted on BBC Radio 4 Extra. Yeah. It was directed by Toby Swift and won an, an award for adapted drama. Hmm. So it's a story that still resonates yeah, and all that stuff. Um, in 37, Long told a reporter he made the film to warn mothers about neglecting their children. But obviously, it's been so much more. Yeah. So much so that in 1994, there was a poll of 324 film journalists um, that included that voted it the best uh, German film yeah. of all time. Uh, I don't think anybody goes to film school without hearing about this movie. No, no. Whether or not you see it, that's up to you. Yeah, but Henry, I'd like to know, like, how, what do you think the lasting impact on this film has been for people? Apart from what we've discussed, like if there's anything that could come to mind. I mean, it's interesting. I, mean, I've, I, I was shown this film twice in film school. Uh, one screening, people really liked it and were kind of, or were, you know, it was a film school screening. Half the students did not pay attention. Uh, and everyone was like, yeah, it was fine. But one screening, boy, did everyone fucking hate it. And so, <laughs> please explain. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were like, uh, I think a lot of people misinterpreted the film. Uh, I think uh, there were some people who uh, were they on Peter Laurie's side? Like, <laughs> uh, no, I mean I think like some people interpreted it as very anti mob justice, and they were very pro mob justice. Uh, and so I see, uh, and so I think there were pe- people got a little heated, and mm. so. But I think it's it's one of those films. I think what, well, but I think what well, I'm trying to get at, yeah, no, it's no. a film that. Uh, still evokes strong emotions Mm -hmm. and i think regardless of what it's trying to say if a film evokes this kind of emotion in the audience yeah that's a timeless film and so if it can still we've had the discussion before 
I don't believe that people truly find these films boring or stilted yeah. or out of date. Yeah. I think it's just they're never exposed to them anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or they find them on accident, which is really cool. Yeah. Like, they'll find something like TCM, or they'll find yeah, the Criterion yeah. Collection. Like, people will find these films if they want to find them. Yeah, yeah. Bla- black and white is not the reason that people don't watch black and white movies. Because if that's the case, then Single Ladies, the music video, would not be as popular as it is. Yeah. If, 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 if they hated, if they didn't, if people didn't love that video so much, you could have convinced me that nobody liked black and white. But I'm yeah. like, no, 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 no. Beyonce proved that black and yeah. white can still work. We have like probably all the nominees for <laughs> cinematographers here are going to be black and white movies. I know. And so, and guess which one's going to win? Passing. Mm, I was going to make an argument for Belfast, but yeah. I really, but that's because Belfast kind of moved me. Yeah. But also, um, we're forgetting that, um, a single brother. Who's usually I two know. brothers? I know. Has a movie that is based on the trailer, looks a lot like a certain Orson Welles's Macbeth. Yeah. Which I haven't seen mentioned in one review, and I don't know why that pisses me off, Henry, yeah. but it does. <laughs> that Macbeth isn't that good, Orson Welles's version. Like it, you could tell it was made on a Republic budget. Yeah. But it's still good. Like yeah. it's 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 got something about it, the minimalism. Yeah. Um and having not seen Tragedy of Macbeth yet, I will tell you what I think and whether or not I'm full of shit or not. But yeah. um but yeah, so like watching this film though, it moves with the same speed that a crime thriller does for us today. Yeah. This movie's an hour and forty six minutes or forty nine minutes. An hour and forty nine minutes. Sounds of the Lambs it runs at about close to two hours. Yeah. They run at the same efficiency. Yeah. Everything's a race against the clock. Yeah. Long I think long with Metropolis in particular gets pegged as like the among that ilk of director that made these long, boring, droning films. They weren't boring when they came out, number one. But number two, like also long is a guy who after this film and after Mabusa, when he goes to America, he makes some of these from, from all the things that I've read. And after watching Ministry of Fear, it totally makes sense. Yeah these wonderful crime movies and these noir films, like he helps innovate noir. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but like anybody who ever says ever again that these movies are boring, I'm just like, go watch M. Yeah. Go watch M and see what that man was able to do with his camera, with his editing, with his sound. Like you can't, you can't tell me that you can't at least respect it. Yeah. I think is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, The Woman in the Window I have seen from yeah. 1944, a classic noir. Yeah, 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 So like that, that to me indicates that like <clears throat> this style ended up influencing a whole other style that long became super associated with, noir. Yeah. This is pre-noir. Oh, yeah. This is very pre-noir. It's a base, it's like a template tool. Yeah. Expressionism at large is a basis for noir. Yeah. But- in particular, that delving into societal decay, yeah, or what an average man will do, or the mistakes an average man will make. In this case, you know, Breckhart makes the worst decisions yeah. <laughs> imaginable. Yeah, they're not involving insurance fraud or mob mentality or mob activity necessarily, but it's a CD crime drama. Yeah, it's very reasonable that this movie was remade into a noir in the fifties. Yeah, um, as far as today though, like. I'll tell you the like, I mean, I got, I would love to watch this side by side with Zodiac sometime yeah. and just watch how much of that film permeates by yeah. accident. Yeah. Because the two seem like a, a natural born double feature. Yeah. 
Um, but I think the ultimate takeaway, honestly, is, is that one of the big things that it gives us is Peter Lorre. Peter yeah. Lorre gets a career because of this. Yeah. This film gives somebody like Hitchcock the ability to go like, say, the man who knew too much, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not the man who knew too much. You're the guy who tells the man who knew too much that he knew too much. <laughs> and that if he tells anybody what he knows too much of, then we're going to kill his girl. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also uh, set a uh, assassination at a theater. It's really cool. <laughs> anyway, Peter, also I'll put you in one of my worst movies and then never work with you again. <laughs> Such is life. That No, that that sucks. That's You know what that is, Henry? To be in The Man Who Knew Too Much is a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. It's better than the remake they do years later. Yeah. Then you go into Secret Agent where you, you're Peter Lorre and you're the only interesting character in that movie. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then never work with Hitchcock again. It's so sad, but it's okay because he does movies like Mad Love. Yeah, he goes. He gets tempted into the. He gets pegged into the horror genre for a bit, and the crime movies. Yeah, he becomes a gangster staple. Like, yeah, it's funny. Like he plays the. He plays this this less than a gangster first, and then becomes a gangster staple, and he's still playing the worst of the gangsters or the or the sleaziest of the gangsters. He. It's kind of like when we were talking about in our Jacques Tati debut episode of just like, he's always out of his element. The Laurie character is kind of always out of his element in certain respects. And Houston sees that and says, I'm going to put you in a role that will help break you out of any other mold. And it's Joel Cairo. Yeah. Joel Cairo is an inevitable character, indelible character that just works. Then you get Ugati. Yeah. Then you get his his work in Passage to Marseille. If you want to, I will tell you, Henry, watch that movie for watching Peter Laurie getting to be a hero. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that ultimately we are so obsessed with the crime 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 drama in this world, not just this country, in yeah. this world. That that fascination has to start somewhere cinematically, and it yeah. definitely starts with M. Yeah, I think it. it I mean, the crime, the crime drama at large starts with gangsterism and gangster films. Yeah. So you have Musketeers of Pig Alley or Regeneration. Yeah, yeah. But but the true crime, homicide, serial killer stories, it starts with somebody whistling in the hollow of the Mountain King. Yeah. Un, 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 inarguably. Unless there might be earlier sound examples, but this is the one that cements it as an iconic genre. Yeah. And an iconic idea. Yeah. Because it is an iconic idea. Millions of dollars are made off of this on Netflix and yeah. Hulu and Amazon each year. Yeah. Um, so within that, Henry, thank you for sitting down with us to chat yeah. about M and Fritz Long. Thank you for bringing Fritz Long to the Valley. No, I love it. I'd love to bring you back for Metropolis. Yeah. But I would want to do that in segments because I yeah. don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't want to push our push our friendship too far. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, as always, thank you for doing the announcing work on our show. And thank you for all the things you've given us with. Of course. You brought world cinema into this. And now because of that, I'm doing a whole series on Jacques Tati. Yeah. It started with Sancho the Bailiff, my friend. Yeah. You are you are the king there. I'm a very cultured person. <laughs> so uh, I I love it, sir. And thank you very much again. And this is yeah. I will say that this is this has to be in my top 100 movies of all time easily. Oh, yeah. And it's it's a film that I adored and it got me into long. So I'm glad that I got to be able to talk about it yeah. with you. Really quickly, let people know what you're working on or where you can be found and uh, 
uh, what you might have coming up? Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, existing. That's my main thing right now. Is uh, Such is life. Such is life. See, I can be just as cool as you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, dark underscore Americana is my Twitter handle. That's where I announce my screenwriting stuff. Well, shoot, so, I'm going to have to follow you on Twitter now. I didn't realize you had Twitter. Yeah. What? Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and then like my YouTube channel is Creative Hell Entertainment. You can find uh, my short films there. Yeah. Um, uh, Artery and Vein. Artery and Vein. You, you uh, want to talk about a film that'll push limits. I didn't realize that mov- that movie would push limits. Yeah. Well, listen, people. when you see M at 12 years old, like, that's where um, it comes from. That is a great reason for you to bring it on here because like, for people who don't know, Henry did a short film called Artery and Vein. Uh, got a lot of attention on YouTube. Yeah, it's about to cross two million hits. Yeah, and, soon. and it, uh, it's it, the comments section on it is quite interesting. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it blew up in the Middle East. Some people are not happy about that. And so, <laughs> um, but um, um, but it, but it's it's basically about organ, uh, 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 organ theft. Yeah. The organ theft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, but yeah, that that CD depravity and whatnot. But you've yeah. also got you've also got that puppet. Movie. I got my puppet film. The puppet uh, film is great. I yeah. love the puppet film. Yeah, uh, that's fabrication. You can find that. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so and other films. Yep, you can also be heard on the Real Nerds podcast, yep. which I believe um, they'll have already heard it, but we'll have already done our year-end film explosion, but also the 2011 film explosion. Yeah. So, which is the year that we've got to decide whether or not Hugo is indeed the best film of 2011. Which... <laughs> Make my list. <laughs> oh, shut the fuck up! So, like... <laughs> God damn it! I hate you and James. Yeah, like... <laughs> How can you... what? It... Do you guys have, like, no fucking heart? <laughs> no. I like Scorsese. I just don't like Hugo. Oh, like. God. Uh, thank you again, Henry, for coming and joining us. This is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show. Uh, you'll also hear where you can find out more about Henry. Um, on the next couple of episodes, we got a couple of interesting things coming up. First of all, we will be returning with Abella Bala for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Uh, that's right. Betty Davis and uh, Joan Crawford are coming to the Ballyhoo, and they're going to have to fight to see who wins the episode. That's the, We're going to make two Hollywood figures fight from their graves. Um, uh, additionally, we will be having John Ekstrom back for uh, Here Comes Cookie, a George Burns and Gracie Allen film from the 30s. That is quite delightful. Um, and we will also have John Matthews returning to talk about television. He's going to introduce television to the Ballyhoo. We're finally letting TV in. I know it's not as cool an art form as film and radio, but hear me out. Television, I think it's going to go a long way and consume the rest of our lives um, in a good way. And also, Marshall Rosales will be returning with a very interesting movie, um, one that I was not made aware of until he brought it up. So we're going to get a it's going to be a very relevant film to today so stay tuned for it um but until all of that and until more jacques tati uh all of this and more is coming to you guys so until next time folks good night This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Ah, 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 ah.